0: This, uh, for this lecture, I'm going to uh, drop my usual mask of cool, scientific, dispassion, dispassionate, value-free uh, science, because uh, I happen to be hopping mad. And uh, the, the thing which, you, which makes me hopping mad, well, there's, there are two conditions for making me hopping mad. One is that a monstrous injustice is being done. Uh, and which is almost always, in fact, I can't think of any other counterexamples, almost always by the government. <laughs> and, uh, and secondly, that everybody's in favor of it. In other words, no voice, at least no voice that I read or hear, comes out against it. So these two, I mean, yeah, you know, no voice comes out against it. So these two conditions being fulfilled, that's when I sort of get, uh, activated. My anger glands, as it would be, you know, like, <laughs> and the little Abner sort of thing, start getting, not getting uh, moving, uh, uh, high speed. Well, it so happens. The last two, uh, the last two things that have activated my anger glands have been both connected with a topic for tonight, um, which is uh, basically price controls and its attendant, its attendant evils. <clears throat> the last time was August 15th, the Black Day of August 15th, 1971, uh, when President Nixon imposed, reimposed price controls for the first time since the Korean War, and really basically the first time since World War II. So that means the first time in quote peacetime unquote. Uh, after many years of saying, and he and his all of his economic advisors put together, saying time and again that they will never impose controls because it wouldn't work and it's terrible and it interferes with free enterprise and so forth. So that was <coughs> that was uh, and since then we've had we've had many phases, some of which I'll talk about, uh, none of which have worked, uh phase one, two, three, uh, three uh and a half and four. Um, and now we have the the, the, the final sort of conclusion to this: the price control, which free or those of us who are free market economists have predicted for many years that after price control come shortages, and so of course we have shortages all around us now, all over the place. And after shortages have come rationing, and that was sort of the icing on the cake. And the the, the thing that's got me hopping mad now, of course, is the announcement of imminent uh, gasoline and fuel rationing. Uh, and as the announcement came pouring off the presses, as President Nixon made his uh, his announcement on the subject, it for some incredible reason, which really to understand it, I think uh, uh, you need a psychopathologist rather than an <laughs> economist. Uh, for some reason, this this buoyed up his his credibility, which had reached about zero or minus uh, minus something. Uh, the president's credibility, and, and it rallied the. Uh, <laughs> the disenchanted masses of Americans to the Nixon, Nixon, Nixon banner. The fact that he gets on television and tells everybody they have to tighten their belt and suffer and and stop stop using electricity and turn down the heat and, and stop using gasoline and all the rest of it. For some reason, for some reason, this, this sort of pronouncement activates the siege mentality, which, uh, which is somewhere in the American psyche, <clears throat> and everybody says, yes, yes, we have to rally behind the cause. It's a, re- it's a great strong statement to make, and Yes, sir. We got to tighten our belts. <clears throat> of course, now we're in the in the uh, we're in the uh, sphere of oh, phase one of belt tightening is always the voluntary belt tightening. <laughs> That's when every they, everybody says that you and him go out there and tighten your belts, <laughs> and that, that of course never works. I mean, it's it's, it's not a great deal of enthusiasm the voluntary belt tightening, and you and him turn down the uh, the heat. Is there, some enterprising reporters the day after the Nixon statement went to the White House and several other federal buildings and and, and the thermometer <laughs> and checked on it, find out that the t- thermometer the temperature range from seventy one to seventy four, that the old the sixty eight, the austere sixty eight degrees had not been imposed yet. And so of course the typical of the White House is their their comeback to this was, well it takes several days for the thermostat <laughs> to move <laughs> change the temperature. <laughs> so uh uh so you and him go out there and sacrifice. That's sort of the phase one. And phase two is of course when this doesn't work and then you turn to, to the coercive arm of the government to, to make sure that everybody sacrifices and everybody's supposed to shape up. And with the, usually with the coercive arm, everybody says, yes, yes, you're right, voluntary methods don't work. So we have to move on to coercion. And of course, we're in the process of, of moving on to coercion already. Well, this sort, of, um, this sort of ties in a little bit with the Galbraith stuff, the attack on affluence I was we talking about last week. And I'm going to get back to the whole conservation movement. Uh, later on, after we talk about capital and we start talking about private property and capital, uh, because the conservation the conservation movement, the environmental movement in general is uh, is in the old joke or the current joke, my sec, just about my second favorite movement. Uh, what my first favorite movement is, I don't know, it would be something like Genghis Khan or something like <laughs> the restoration of the Habsburgs or something like that. Uh, the, and it ties in with the, with the attitude, and this I think ties in with the Everybody's willing us to belt Titan, or at least proclaim willingness to belt Titan. It ties in with the attack on, uh, not only affluence, but attack on, uh, on comfort, on consumption, on, uh, um, uh, any sort of, any sort of really, uh, human, uh, uh, survival above a bare subsistence, permanent subsistence level. In other words, it's really attack on man, period. And if you think this is overdrawn, attack on human beings, period, if you think this is overdrawn, I'm gonna get back to that scene later. Uh, because if you think it's overdrawn, read some of the conservation movement literature. Uh, it's an instructive, uh, some years ago I had to, it was part of my job to read some of it, and it was an instructive, uh, uh, an instructive lesson because uh, what really animates the conservationist, the environmentalist movement, not, they're not really worried about sulfur dioxide and that sort of stuff. This, is great, this, is, this stuff is um, only grist to the mill. It's something that's lashed onto. What they're really against are people, because they're always talking about man the destroyer, man the garbage can, all that sort of stuff, man the polluter, man the evil whatever. And, and the theme is, basically, that nature... Before man existed, everything was great. Everything was terrific. Uh, nature... Every, nature was uh, harmonious and balanced, and ecologically, every you know the, the animals were eating each other to the proper optimum, <laughs> and all of that, and, and the plants were whatever the plants do, <laughs> and uh, everything was going great, and the and, the, and, the, and the, it was a circular world, as they like to put it. In other words, the the planets went around the sun, and the, and, the, and everything was sort of balanced. Nothing much happened. Obviously, it was a pretty boring world, but we didn't have to worry about it because there were no people anyway. There were <laughs> the concept of boredom doesn't even come into the picture. So it was a circular world, everybody was sort of happy and contented, and the, 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 the beaver was uh, doing his beavering and all that. And then, into this pleasant and happy, ecologically balanced picture, people enter. Uh, right, evil man enters the picture, and evil man is entering the picture, not having any instincts, not not having this, not accept, not working within the envir- a given environment, not bound by the temperature of the, wherever he happens to be born in, moving around, changing the environment, chopping down trees, uh, catching fish and all the other stuff, uh, altering the environment in a linear manner. In other words, a a manner of progress. Let's put it that way. I'm going to use the old-fashioned word, which is now out of fashion. So the man progresses from a caveman, from dying at the age of 21 or whatever, uh, builds stuff, builds factories, builds uh, uh, increases the standard of living, builds capital equipment, uh, builds medical techniques and all the rest of it, and survives and prospers and flourishes and this is sort of a this is a linear thing. By doing that, the you know the beaver tend to die out, and the trees are chopped down. All the other terrible fish are fished, and all, all, all the other terrible things that happen uh, to the to the to the other species. And I confess, right right here, I have a value judgment. I am a human chau- chauvinist. In other words, uh, if there's a choice in the old lifeboat between people and caribou, I'll go for the people any time. And uh, uh, I think. I think it's, let me put this, I think it's rather bizarre, <coughs> take the other position, <laughs> that if there's a choice between the people and the caribou and the old lifeboat, you dump the people and you, you, know, you bring in the caribou. But I really think that this is the, the guts, of the, the, the gut core of the environmentalist uh, uh, movement. And so anytime anytime there's any kind of a clash between the interests of hum, human beings on one hand, and the interests of trees, plants, fish, caribou, uh, aesthetics, in other words, the landscape, on the other hand, people are always supposed to lose out. And this is, of course, very relevant to the energy crisis, which I'm going to talk about, hope to talk about it tonight anyway. Uh, so, the uh, getting down to the price control thing, this, is what, this was a topic which up until a couple of years ago, uh, up until two, two years ago, the topic of price control was the sort of thing I told students. And it was sort of like the old Neanderthal days. I give them stories about how back in the old days of World War II, course <laughs> none of the kids remember World War II. Back in the old days of World War II, there was price control. There was something called the OPA, and it was rationing. Everybody lined up around the block, and you couldn't find anything. And I told all the horror stories that was going on there. And they'd sit there gaping, and to them it was just about as relevant as the, you know, when I talk about ancient Rome and how the same thing happened then. But uh, so it, it was a sort of... Sort of a Neanderthal type thing. It's supposed to be sort of an antiquarian story about what happens when you have price control and rationing. Unfortunately, antiquarianism is now very relevant, <laughs> directly coming up. And we're back in the old, the old, uh, the old business. Uh, it's, it's, uh, one of the interesting things about studying history, by the way, is that you, you see the same old junk as going on 100 years ago, 20 years ago, 1,000 years ago as is going on now. And this, I suppose, equips you to deal with it. You get a certain perspective. At uh, any rate, um, the theory of price controls is fairly clear and fairly, and fairly simple. And as far as I know, it's not really contested by anybody. Uh, even, even the economists who don't say anything or favor price controls when they come in. Uh, basically, you know, going now to figure five, uh, we have our supply and demand curve for any product. Prices on the y-axis and the quantity purchased on the x-axis. The falling demand curve and the rising supply curve, or it could be a vertical supply line in the short run. Equilibrium point at the intersection, equilibrium price. Uh, and as you remember, we have a sort of a feedback arrangement, a built-in feedback arrangement in the, mar- in the free market so that any temporary shortage is eliminated because the price rises uh, and any temporary surplus is eliminated very quickly because the price falls to the f- equilibrium free market level where demand is equal to supply where the, where the market is cleared. So then, what happens if some outside agency uh, namely the government there's really no other uh, it's possible this could be done voluntarily by businesses, but it's very unlikely <laughs> um, an outside agency using coercion, namely the government steps in and prevents this process from working in other words, prevents the uh, market from reaching the, the equilibrium point well let's take uh let's take the above uh, market price say that uh, we have a, a, a price above the market, which the government says, thou shalt not sell below X amount. And if you think this is, if you think this is rare, it isn't. I'll just get to it in a minute. Uh, so the government says, uh, enforces a minimum price floor, minimum price control, above the, well, it, it, presumably it's above the free market price. If it's below the free market price, somebody it doesn't matter. I mean, in other words, if somebody says, uh, the government passes an edict saying, thou shalt not, to General Motors, thou shalt not sell Cadillacs for less than $500, new Cadillacs. It's not gonna, you know, it's not gonna make an imprint on the market. It's gonna be sort of a dead letter law. Uh, if on the other, so, you know, so, the only relevant, uh, edict is minimum price controls above the market. Indeed, there's no point in, you know, in issuing the other one. So, if you have a minimum price control above the market, you have a line, a line, a horizontal line above the equilibrium price, what happens? What happens is that at that minimum price, uh, the public will only buy, uh, this much, uh, up to the, the, A, up to the, up to point A, and the, but being, pouring out on the market in response to this right, high price is, uh, the amount B, which is, uh, much greater. So we now have an unsold surplus, a gap between A and B, which, uh, which the market doesn't, unless you engage in black market illegal activities, is rather rare with a four, minimum price. Um, the government is now by outside coercion is preventing this natural uh, equilibrium, process, equilibrium process from taking place so what you have then is a situation of a permanent unsold surplus you're sitting there then with the government saying okay thou shalt not sell widgets for below $10 a case or thou shalt not sell soybeans for below X dollars a bushel or whatever so what happens then is that you have this unsold surplus which, which somehow sits there aggravating the situation something has to be done about it uh the, uh the most famous example of the unsold surplus, well, let me, let me finish the, the theory before we getting to that. So that's, so in other words, the minimum price control brings about a permanent, aggravated, chronic, miserable, unsold surplus. What happens when the price is set below the free market price? In other words, we have a maximum price control uh, below the free market. Again, a maximum price control above the free market price would be would be meaningless. <clears throat> so, in this situation, when the price when the price is set below the free market price, a government saying, "Thou shalt not sell uh, Cadillacs for more than five hundred dollars a new Cadillac," then you have some trouble, uh, other and the opposite kind of trouble. Then the, the free market is again prevented from reaching the equilibrium point, from from clearing the market, from from uh, equating demand and supply. Now we have a permanent unsold, a permanent shortage, a permanent excess demand over supply. We have demand being permanently greater than supply in the case of maximum price control and supply permanently greater than demand in case of minimum price control. So we have other words, a chronic, miserable, permanent shortage. People are clamoring to get Cadillacs. The government says Cadillacs are now $500. You can't sell them for more than that. Where are they, boy, boy? I want my Cadillac. Uh, I want to find all the Cadillac. Ain't got them. Sorry, not there today, and so forth, and so on. There's a sudden disappearance of <laughs> the Cadillac. <coughs> so prices are nice and cheap, but you can't find anything to buy the stuff at, at the cheap price. Um, and we'll see what happens with that. Uh, and and then you have this chronic, let's say, shortage problem. Uh, okay, this this um, the minimum. The famous example of the permanent minimum price control which apparently is just this year going to be eliminated. I, I don't really believe it. I mean, I'll, I'll believe it when I see it, but that way. Uh, the famous case is the, there is also a case of the minimum wage law, but we'll get to wages a little later. Uh, it's very similar. The famous case is, of course, the the farm, the American, all, all other farm programs, the farm price support program. The uh, farm price support program, program began, well, first of all, the, the, the story is, is, uh, is, uh, starts with the, really with World War I. During and, bef- and before and during World War I, the American farmer had the biggest bonanza in his history. Because he was in a situation where European countries were blockading each other, <coughs> they weren't, and then they were at war with each other, so they didn't, they didn't buy from each other. So all the European countries turned to an American farmer to buy the wheat and the cotton and so forth. So there was an enormous increase in demand for American agriculture. So the American farmer was, had the biggest, let's say, the biggest fun time, the biggest boom time of his life in, in this period. And since then, of course, when the World War I was over, uh, the, you know, the European countries started selling and trading with each other again, and the farm prices collapsed. <coughs> the big the big farm bonanza was over. So ever since then, ever since 1919, the American farmer has been trying to force the rest of us to go back to the good old days, which is called parity. It's a nice name for it. Go back to the good old days when we, and he has the same price relationship. In other words, farm prices are the same proportion, the same relationship to other prices, non-farm prices, as they were in the good old days of 1914. And of course this is an absurd and idiotic demand because, um, I mean, economic conditions are not the same as they were then. You don't have this peculiar wartime boom. And also, the chronic situation with farms in general is, uh, obviously we start with the world. In 1789, almost everybody was a farmer. I mean, either everybody was a farmer or they were selling farm products. <laughs> So you had 95% of the population was former. Then as the world progresses and the industry comes in and services come in and all well, the rest of it, people leave the farm and you know, go to the big city, Sin City, <laughs> and do other things. And, and so we, you now, we now have a situation where 5% of Americans are farmers, something like 5%. Well, I mean, I suppose in a sense it's too bad if you're, if you're an agricultural romantic, which I am not. <laughs> Uh, So if you're agricultural romantic, you could pine for the good old days, you know, the old days of the the yeoman, the sturdy yeoman. (laughs) But, uh, I mean, you know, you're willing to pay the price for this. The price largely being smashing all of the the production that's been going on for the last 150 years and going back to the production conditions of the old farm, where where I'm afraid most of the public would die out because we can't, we're now geared to a population, Uh, the population and and our economic level, a standard of living is geared to a highly industrialized world, not a, not a world of the old sturdy yeoman farmer. So the farmers tend to die out. And what usually happens is not so much that the old, old Ezra uh, you know, leaves the farm at the age of 60, it's, it's his sons and daughters coming up, growing up, leave the farm and go to the big city, and that's the usual process by which labor migration takes place. So you can't freeze this. You can't say, oh, we've got to have as many farmers as we had in 1910 uh, and all the rest of it. Uh, However, this, is, this has been the Farmer's Great Green, to restore the world with the golden age of parity. Well, finally, in 1928, Herbert Hoover, one of the most disastrous of our presidents, uh, was elected and pl- uh, pledged to enact the Farm Block Program, the Program of Farm Price Support, which he promptly did. important thing here is that he was enacted before the Depression. Most historians get this little blurred, and they tend to think that the Farm Price Support Program was a response to the Great Depression. It wasn't. It was enacted in March or February 29 of the... Or April, and the depression came in October. So um, there was no hint of it. I mean, it was, this is a boom, but the, the farmers wanted there. They wanted to restore the good, the good old days. So, um, so we have the farm price support, which Hoover starts off, especially in wheat and cotton. Wheat has always been the big, the big one, <coughs> and cotton too, because that has the most political clout. Uh, and uh, so. The, the government, the federal government established grain stabilization corporations and other things. It was headed by the Federal Farm Board, uh, established the Federal Farm Board to buy up wheat and cotton and keep it off the market, and, you know, increasing the demand curve artificially for wheat and cotton. This raises prices. All right? That's the theory. You raise the demand curve. Well, what happened there was, presumably to the desired level, on the parity level, well they found out there was a problem. Incidentally, who was, who was made? Who is responsible for this farm, farm, farm block program, farm price support program, and has been responsible ever since? Uh, two groups at the, at the beginning of the third group I'll tell you that. One is the large farmers, and I want to, I'll go back to that in a minute, because the small farmers, the thing has always been a push, the farm program has been pushed as a, have to help out the poor farmers. The poor farmers are suffering there in Iowa, I have to help them out. Actually, the poor farmers have nothing to do with this program, get very little out of it. It's the large farmers <coughs> get a lot out of it. Number one, and number two, the farm equipment manufacturers, the the, the manufacturers of uh, combines, tractors, and all the rest of it, who, who, as we'll see, we'll see why they get there, especially subsidized by the sort of, by subsidizing a large farmer. And the, the, the beginning, the origins of the farm block, the farm block program, farm price support, begins in 1921 with George Peake and General Hugh Johnson, both of whom were chairman of the board and president of the Moline Plow Company, the second biggest farm equipment manufacturer. And then the head of the first head of the Federal Farm Board, 1929, was Alexander Legge, who was the chairman of the board of the International Harvester, which is the major farm equipment manufacturing. <laughs> so it's the farm ma- equipment manufacturers that usually don't get talked about in this connection. Plus the large farmers <coughs> get back to that. So anyway, so they, they buy, they raise the demand curve for wheat and cotton, they're buying up like mad, but something, there's a, there's a problem here. The problem is that the market, being fairly intelligent, realizes that they're, they're sitting there, the Federal, federal Farm Board is sitting there, with an enormous amount of wheat and cotton, they're scared they might sell it someday and the whole market will collapse. So this it's sort of Damocles is hanging over the cotton and wheat market. And as a result, nothing ever happened. The price kept falling. And then the depression comes, the price is falling even more. So um, so that didn't work. It began to dawn. I organized farmed them and on the farm block, there's only one way in which they can government can raise the price, but they, they've got to buy the wheat and cotton up and so forth and keep it somewhere off the market and they have to start doing something about restricting production. In other words, <laughs> because of the unsold surplus that's piling up, which they realize is piling up, we got to do something to cut production, cut the supply curve down, say, to point A. While they've been trying that for a long time, ever since, it hasn't really worked. Uh, first they tried the, guess what, voluntary methods. This was typical Herbert Hoover uh, flim-flam. Herbert Hoover specialized in doing things which are really coercive and on the guise of being voluntary. So he sent his people out to stump, the Secretary of Agriculture, etc., stump the country, telling all the farmers, look, here's a situation, he didn't use these terms, that's essentially what he said, you've got an inelastic demand curve for wheat, I mean the demand curve for each each farmer is almost horizontal, but for wheat in general, it's inelastic, so if you all, all you guys get together and cut production by 10% or 20% or whatever, and, and slaughter every fourth pig and that sort of stuff, you will raise the price and all of you will benefit, you'll have, uh, you'll share a much higher income, in other words a classic cartel situation. Uh, we'll get to cartels later, too, but anyway, it's obvious how that happens. And so we tell, they're, they're stepping in the country telling, and all the farmers are saying, yeah, yeah, great, right, ha we understand this. That's all cut production by 20%. And then you see what would happen is the farm, old Ezra would go back to his, back home after this meeting and say, hey, Ma, Uh those, old, those fools over there, they're all cutting production by 20%, let's double our production, and take advantage of the higher price. <laughs> So, what would, <laughs> so, why these other jerks are out there cutting their production and, and causing the price of wheat or cotton to go up, we're going to double ours and, you know, if they take advantage of it. So, each farmer thought the same way, and the result was a collapse of the voluntary program. Production went up instead of down. <laughs> so, and then they started the, by the end of the Hoover administration, the farm holiday movement started volunteer, uh, I would say vol- uh, vigilante activities where they were trying to, bur- they burn the tobacco, the night riders in tobacco country going around burning the tobacco, those people those farmers who refused to go along with the tobacco cutting, and they dumped the milk. Uh, been, they did that just a few years ago, a so milk strike, where they dump other people's milk. In other words, uh, private violence and private criminality, as opposed to the usual government criminality. Now, that didn't work either. It's a big country, and, and there's a lot of farmers, a lot, a lot of tobacco, a lot of milk. So that didn't work. So there's only one thing left, that was the turn of the government, to force the farmers to cut production. So enter the New Deal. By this time, Roosevelt enters the picture. But the thing is, by that time, the Hoover administration was willing to go along with this. It was not that the Hoover people. It was sort of a logical step. The next logical step, while voluntarism doesn't work, we have to turn to coercion. So FDR, of course, is very willing to turn to coercion, and then we have the next phase, phase two of the program, the AAA, Agricultural Adjustment (laughs) Administration, headed up by essentially by farm equipment manufacturers and people of that sort, the farm block in general. And, uh, so they, they, try to, uh, introduce, so the surpluses were piling up. It's always a big problem. That, first of all, it's an embarrassment, right? I mean, here's the, the, the depression. People are starving in the cities, and out there on the farms, the government's piling in the warehouses, piling up all this wheat, all this hogs, and, and pork, and, and wheat, and cotton. That's going, it's, it's rotting away, and what are you going to do with it? It looks bad. And so they, the, uh, uh, the fact that it's, it's, and the, the, the uh, the extreme left, uh, I think correctly coined the term, poverty in the midst of plenty. In fact, here you have all this, the government's piling up all, all this wheat and cotton and meat and all that stuff that's not being used. And here the people in the cities are starving. There's something wrong with the system. Well, you're darn right there was something wrong with the system. It wasn't capitalism, it was the government, obviously. So, uh, so then, they well, the next step was, was to introduce coercive controls on production, limit production. Well, the thing is they couldn't exactly, there are too many farcities, they couldn't say, Okay, from now on, there's only a certain number of bushels of wheat can be produced, and you, you, and you produce, you know, 1% of that. They couldn't, they couldn't introduce production controls in Old Ezra because they, they just didn't have the manpower to enforce it. I mean, how can you control how many bushels of wheat Old Ezra is producing? It's almost impossible. You have to have a vast 10 million man Gestapo going to each farm and checking up. So, The only practical way which they could do it was to impose acreage controls, because it's easy for the county agricultural agent to go around in a car and see how many acres old Ezra has under the plow, how many acres is devoted to wheat, how many acres is devoted to fallow, and all that. So the New Deal imposes acreage controls, which we still have, by the way. We still have up until this year. Uh, Imposes acreage controls, and they sit back and say, okay, now we're going to, this is going to limit it. Now we're going to push the supply curve over to point A, and everything would be hati-tati. And, 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 of course, in this program, <coughs> this sort of program, the consumer is the average American, suffers two ways. One, he suffers because of the, all, the, all the food that's kept off the market, the wheat and the cotton and, and the meat and so forth, is kept off the market. He suffers from a restriction of supply, and the price goes up. He suffers as a consumer, and then he suffers as a taxpayer, because the taxpayer has to pay for this. He has to pay, the government taxes him in order to pay for the get the money to buy the wheat and the cotton and, and the meat and store it somewhere and have it rot. So the, it's, a double, it's a double burden on the average American. Uh, so who, who, who suffers from this program, the average American, who benefited from it? Well, in the first place, the, uh, the small farmer, which was always the person held up as a, as, a, as a beneficiary, didn't really benefit. One of the th- the subsidy the government paid was per pound or per bushel. So, you you have to really be a large wheat farmer, a large cotton farmer, a planter, to really benefit from this. Uh, And and as a matter of fact, with the acreage control coming in uh, and limiting acres, you know, cutting down the number of acres the farmer can have under cultivation. The result of that was, what do the farmers do? What was the response to this? Very shrewd. Okay, I have a thousand acres and they're making me cut out 200. Here's what I'm gonna do. I'll I'll take the, the, the 200 acres of rocky land, which doesn't produce anything anyway, concentrate all my efforts on the best land, the best 800, and mechanize and put in more fertilizer and stuff, and then raise production anyway, which is what they did. So they cut out the land and they raised production on the, they wound up with more production than they had before and surpluses kept piling up. Uh, this was incidentally helped by the by the federal government. Here's an interesting, interesting example of political science at work. Uh, the Department of Agriculture, paying farmers not to grow wheat, uh, and, and paying them handsomely you know, to take the wheat and, 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 and put it in the, on a, a store in useless uh, warehouses, paying them not to grow wheat. At the same time, another wing of the Department of Agriculture down the hall is paying farmers a lot of money to include their fertilizers to mechanize and to irrigate the dry land and so they can grow more wheat. <laughs> now, you might consider this as irrational. So you look that from the point of view of the consumer, but from the point of view of pure logic, it's irrational. Because why is the Department of Agriculture, on the one hand, paying the farmers to grow more wheat, the other hand, paying them to grow less, less, wheat seems pretty crazy, right? That's not crazy, however, from the point of view of two groups of people. One, the bureaucrats in the power of agriculture. They're, they're doing great. You need two divisions where there were no divisions before. <laughs> and secondly, it's not so crazy from the point of view of the farmer. He's raking it in and getting paid for more wheat and less wheat. <laughs> so, the farmer, however, who benefits was really the large farmer. Because as the small, as the farmers contracted the acreage and mechanized, they kicked off their land, the sharecroppers, uh, the small farmers, the tenant farmers, who were who were uh, who now become uh, you see an a, a, a stumbling block, an obstacle in this in this drive to concentrate and mechanize. So what you have then is a, a, the result of this was the famous sharecropping problem in the South, particularly Negro sharecroppers, Negro tenants in the South. As a result of which, we had an enormous immigration of Negro uh, Southern Negro uh, sharecroppers were now unemployed, disemployed, kicked off the land, and coming north of the cities. So a large part of the famous Negro migration of the 30s is directly caused by this New Deal farm program, which is supposed to, supposed to benefit the small farmers. Actually, did just the reverse. Uh, well, eventually, as we get to the 50s, uh, the, what the farmers are doing is, okay, we, we take the land out of wheat and cotton, we'll put it into something else, put it into soybeans, lettuce, whatever it happens to be, corn, and as they do that, the supply curve of lettuce, corn, and soybeans increases, and the price falls. Another headache. What do we do about the soybean price going down? So then the go- in the Eisenhower administration, we had the brilliant idea of the so-called soil bank. It's a great phrase, the soil bank. It rings with thrift and, uh, you know, <laughs> and all that, and the Protestant virtues. Actually, what it meant was, the government was paying the farmers, that all right, take the land out of wheat and keep it out of anything. Don't grow anything on it. It's <laughs> called the soil bank. So that's what they did. Uh, they got paid for not producing wheat. They paid for not producing cotton, and so forth. Uh, Senator Eastland, for many years, uh, as a large cotton planter in Mississippi, uh, reaped a handsome fortune out of the farm price, farm price, cotton price support program, which he was instrumental in keeping on the books. So uh, another group of people, incidentally, yeah, I, I mentioned the farm equipment manufacturers and large cotton and wheat farmers. Another group very interested in the perpetuating the farm price support Pro- program, a group which is not usually mentioned, are the, are the warehouse operators. The government's got all this wheat and cotton they don't know what to do with. They, they, they naturally use it, they rent that from private warehouses. They stay, and, and, and it's, a, it's a guaranteed uh, demand. I mean, uh, they there forever. So if you're, if you're a warehouse operator, you're in great shape. You have this federal government always using, always renting out your space. And so the warehouse operator, the grain elevator men, in the case of wheat, uh, or one of the big lobbyists for the continuing the farm price program. Uh, well, uh, as I say, the, well, the result of this, of course, to keep farm prices up. And when we had the, the, the 1971, the phases coming in, the present price control program, we had an interesting situation where farm prices and food prices, uh, were, were both under minimum and under maximum price control. The, uh, what happened was that the, even when phase one came in, as you remember, everything was frozen, but but of course, the uh, for, uh, food prices on the, on the farm were exempt. Processed food prices were not, not exempt from the freeze, so which you have a situation where, where food prices on the farm, which of course are always sacrosanct, are allowed to keep going up. Processed food prices are frozen, and of course you'd see what, you know, you'd see what's gonna happen very quickly, to processed food is gonna start disappearing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So this was, uh, well, that's the basically the uh, farm price support program. And one of the results of this, and this uh, ties in a lot of other stuff, is the uh, the famous wheat deal with Soviet Russia. Uh, The wheat deal, uh, which is one of the big things, gave a great impetus to the current 1973 food price uh, uh, boom, food price inflation, whatever you want to call it, uh, the wheat deal was consummated in the summer of 1972. The United States sold the Soviet Union. I put soul in quotes. Sold the Soviet Union 440, 440 million bushels of wheat, amounting to 30% of the average annual wheat crop, uh, almost one-third. Well, uh, since Russia didn't have the money to pay for this, presumably, we, uh, the U- U.S. taxpayer kicked in $750 million to pay for this. Mm. <laughs> Incidentally, this is typical of foreign aid. Uh, here, here you see the essence of the foreign aid program. This is a foreign aid program. The American taxpayer pay, uh, gets socked a lot of money. The money goes to the American government. The American government takes out a handling charge uh, for operating the program, bureaucrat salaries, pay, ships the money to some foreign government. The foreign government then takes, hmm? foreign government then takes the money and um, uses it on American export products, either automobiles or computers or wheat or whatever, cotton or whatever, the result of this, and they, of course, take out their handling charge, the foreign government. The result of all this process is that the American taxpayer has subsidized the American export industry uh, with, a, with a partial subsidies going along, along the way for their handling costs of the American government and the foreign government. So this is what happens here. Uh, the uh, Let's say the taxpayer pays for this uh, process. The beginning of, uh, this of course kicks off an enormous increase in the price of wheat. The supply drops by one third. And, uh, there's also an enormous increase after that in the price of livestock. The livestock eat the wheat as a part of the feed grain. So there's a restriction in the supply curve of livestock goes, pushes to the left. And farmers start killing the cattle at a very young age and that sort of stuff and getting rid of them. The result of this whole process was a big food price boom. Uh, there were other causes of it, but that was the, the major one in 73. But so the thing is, the, the, the reason why we did the program to begin with is undoubtedly the, sur- the weak surpluses which are piling up, and boy, oh, boy, because you have these surpluses, i say they're an embarrassment. And so the American, the American government's attitude to those surpluses all this time since 1933 has been, let's get rid of them some way. How do we get rid of them? We'll dump them, uh, give it away, or sell it, or get the taxpayers or whatever, anything to get, get the stuff off the warehouse and get the, uh, where, you know, other, more wheat into the warehouse. <laughs> um... There were other causes of the food price boom, and that was the, basically, I think, the major one. There was um, um, there was other, I'd say, you know, sort of temporary things. There was a sharp decline in the Peruvian fish fishmeal production just about the same time. The anchovies left the Peruvian coast for some obscure reason, nobody, far than I know, figured out, and so forth. That also caused a drop in animal feed. But that was the that was the basic. Also, another one is uh, something which we we'll get to later. The fall of the value of the dollar, the famous devaluation of the dollar on the foreign exchange market, leading to American exports becoming cheaper and therefore stimulating exports of all sorts of stuff, including wheat. Um, well, okay, that's uh, that's sort of that's the sort of the minimum price control program. And this is also the maximum price control program, which is more beloved. I mean, there are, there's a lot of minimum price control here and there, but the maximum price control program is the way to really go all out. Um, the, Let's say what it sets up is a shortage, and there's certainly several reactions to the shortage. First place, if the demand is greater than the supply, it means, there's a, let's say, the shortage, how do you allocate whatever shortage is available, whatever is the, the, the scarce supply, so to speak, available? Well, the various ways of allocating. Usually, in the free market, it's allocated by the price system. Here are other ways to allocate it. As you see, there's less produced now. There's even less than there was in equilibrium. Uh, various ways come up of doing it. One, there's, there's, uh, favoritism. Uh, the classic method. During World War II, and I say, which now becomes very relevant, when we had meat rationing, uh, there was a big meat shortage. Always a big meat shortage. It was always blamed on the war effort. And the people swallowed this until the war was over and there was still a meat shortage. And then, began to get edgy. Uh, So there's a big, big, uh, price controls on meat were way below equilibrium market price. And so uh, (laughs) favoritism is one way of allocating. In other words, for example, during the war, during World War II, if you were the old, if you had an old neighborhood butcher, this is of course, before the days of the impersonal supermarket. You had neighborhood butchers. If you had an old neighborhood butcher and you knew the old neighborhood butcher from the old days, and you were a good customer of his. Then he graciously allowed you under the counter of the hot meat, so to speak. Was, got, I got a good beef down here, don't show it to anybody, and for you, Mrs. So-and-so, I'll, you know, give you the meat. sell <laughs> you the meat. So that's one way. Favoritism. If you, if you had a butcher, if you had a, bro- a butcher, was a, your brother-in-law, it's still better. And you had an unlimited meat supply. <laughs> Get a hold of that. Uh, relatives, friends in the butcher business, and so forth. Uh, so that was, uh, so favoritism is one classic method. Uh, of allocating scarce resource. And incidentally, one of the, one of the consequences of price control, we'll see later when we get to rent control, uh, also follows. One of the consequences of this is racial and religious discrimination is aggravated by rent price control. Because what you're, what you're doing here is instead of the consumer being king, instead of, instead of the seller or supplier courting the consumer, you know, advertising uh, market research and all the rest of it, now you see you have a permanent shortage due to the price control. Now the the seller is in the driver's seat, and the consumer has to go begging to the seller, please sell me some meat, and so forth. And then you see, with the, with the seller in the driver's seat, he doesn't have to court the consumer anymore. He can tell the consumer to go to hell. And then his favoritism will come in. Okay, I'll only sell meat, one to my relatives, two to the racial or religious group whom I'm in favor of, because now he can allocate it. So the, a room for producer control of the situation now comes into the picture. Uh, so favoritism is a big uh, one way of rationing. Another way is queuing up. Another classic method. Um, lining up. The line comes into the picture. And we'll see that as rationing comes, uh, we'll see the lovable line uh, process uh, syndrome. You line up, right? So there's during World War II, for example, there was cigarette rationing. The cigarette showed up, I think, every Tuesday morning or something like that, and everybody was allocated only one pack per person or whatever. At any rate, the, the line formed around the a block around four in the morning, and then the you know, by eight in the morning or something. And if you happen to be in the first third of the line or whatever, you can you get, you get buy cigarettes. So the, the great institution of the line comes into in the picture. It's one way of rationing. Uh, well, that means the first guy who gets to the line, who has the patience, who has the energy, has the stamina to stay there all night, can, can buy the meat or buy the gasoline, whatever it happens to be. The other people are out of luck. Little old lady has to hobble up or somebody's on a night shift, of course, in great shape. But others uh, you know, lose out. Little old lady who, has, who can't stand up for, for a long time, uh, can't buy anything in this process. Little old lady has had it. So what you have is a different allocation of, instead of allocating by monetary demand, you now allocate by whoever who can get to the head of the line first. Uh, there are processes uh, in the old days, uh, uh, for example, the Metropolitan Opera used to have uh, keep there for various reasons, both, I think... Uh, uh, internal and and, and or, or legal ordinances they used to keep keep their uh, price of their ticket way below the free market price as a result almost impossible to get a ticket And one of these things uh, there's a person in this audience tonight who used to spend one of the Saturday nights uh, online waiting for the you know the t- ticket office to open so you get the metropolitan ticket uh, This sort of phenomenon this is no longer true because now like uh, the price has been up to up to more or less the free market level uh, but this sort of so this sort of phenomenon is lining up queuing up. There's always, a, there's always a phenomenon, always an attribute of, of government uh, activity, uh, government uh, price control, because it's, it comes into the picture as a form of rationing. Uh, allocation, well, favoritism also comes in, by the way, allocation, who's going to get this? Because so the government rationing comes into the picture, who they're going to decide is going to get it? We'll get back to that, government favoritism. Uh, another process is uh, hidden, well, uh, I should say, decline in quality. Uh, because the decline in quality is very, very difficult to police. It's, it's, not too difficult to police a price. You know, you, you have the OPA, the old OPA or the current IRS, will for, forces the grocery stores, the supermarkets to put their, post their price, the price is such and such. But to for, for check up on quality is an extremely difficult task. It means you need a multi-million man Gestapo of experts in the field, then you have to have a super Gestapo to check up on that the experts on being bribed. That's so a fantastic, I mean, you know, the implication is fantastic. For example, uh, when, when phase one came on, the phase one was the famous freeze. Everything was frozen supposedly for it, three months. And nothing was supposed to change. was supposed to be there, sitting on everything. Well, the first thing that happened, the first people to break the, uh, the freeze, uh, were, by, by declines in quality, were the heroic uh, ice cream manufacturers in New York City. Uh, I put my hat to them. <laughs> they, uh, I, I, for example, happened to be a fan of caramel almond crunch ice cream. There are two brands which I shall not name, <laughs> two <laughs> conspicuous brands and who, who make them. In both cases, about a month after the price freeze came into the picture and the quality could be adjusted, there suddenly there wasn't any almonds in the Carmel Almond Crunch ice cream. Where's the almond? It'd be like one almond per quart to satisfy the technical requirement, but the almonds have tended to disappear. And who's going to check? How are you going to have a Gestapo checking up on them? how many almonds have you got there? <laughs> The, the candy bars are going to have more air in them, you know, it's, uh, those of you are candy bar fans. Uh, where's the, you know, where's the, whatever, the baby roof of the, where is it? So the, it's subtly the, uh, uh, lower the, uh, the size of the product. Force bottoms began to appear in various lotion bottles and things of that sort. So they have a new improved lotion bottle, but it turns out it's less ounces because the framus is under the, you know, the false bottom. So all that sort of, and then another, another group that broke the freeze, the heroic repairmen of New York, the, uh, the painters and the repairmen. We began to find, for example, the landlords would call painters in for, to paint a room, and the painters would charge much more, 10%, 20%, 30% more than they did in July, before the freeze, and they'd say, hey, you can't do this, this is a, this is a price freeze. And the painters say, yeah, yeah, sure, but this is a different, you see, this is a different room because the plaster is over the framus, and the thing is, uh, it's much tougher. So it's a different quality job. <laughs> Who can check up on How do you know whether, I mean, you have to be an expert painter, obviously, mean, to figure out whether the plaster is really over the frame. If you're an expert painter, you're in the, you're in the painter's union, you're, you're talking to the public. <laughs> so, uh, and the, the, heroic repairmen, the TV and radio repairmen, you take the TV or radio to repair, be repaired, and they say, they charge you, you know, considerably more than before the freeze, and you say, hey, wait a minute, this is a freeze, they say, yeah, yeah, but this time the condenser is wrapped around the, 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 the tube there, and forth. So it's a much tougher job, and it's different and all that. And so in this way, the, uh, the service industry pioneered in, in, in breaking the, uh, the price freeze through this, sort of, through this decline in quality. I say it's almost impossible to enforce it so you begin to have this sort of situation where the, uh, the relationships begin to uh, change from the so-called freeze setup. Um, and also, finally, of course, the black market, uh, the black market is the market. It's the market uh, popping up again. It's the hot. It's the hot meat. It's the, when you say, uh, "Well, I, there's, there's no there's a meat shortage. You can't find the meat, but you know if you're willing to pay, except you know, considerably more, don't tell anybody. Here's the meat." So the black market shows up. Uh, now, think about the black There's several things about a black market, even as lovable as it is. Uh, <laughs> first of all, is no, uh, the, the sort of people who. In, Engage in black market, the black market entrepreneurs are not the same people as the free market entrepreneurs because they're more, the people are more attuned to illegal activity. Uh, and so the quality of the product has to be a little bit shaky sometimes. You can't really be sure you are with, you know, the brand name. Second of all, they can't, they can't advertise. They can't take a full-page ad, ad in the Times and say, hot meat available. <laughs> so they have, to, they have to go through sort of shady channels and it's costly and the consumer can't find out. You have to be the sort of person who knows where the, where the hot items are located. You know, not, most, most of the public don't, don't know this. So they're sort of excluded from the black market. Second, uh, thirdly, uh, there's a heavy cost involved, not only because there's no advertising, but also because they have to pay off the cops and payment of the cops, you know, adds on, cuts the supply, raises the price. So you, have, you wind up with something like this. If you, if you take a vertical line up from the, from the intersection point of, of the maximum price control point and the, and the, say, point C, and the supply curve, and have a vertical line up from it, you'll see more or less what the black market price will be. You hit, hit the demand curve of the black market price. So the black market price is considerably higher than the free market price. And again, so the public is misled, and they say, well, gee, we can't we can't eliminate price control because then the then the uh, item will go all the way up will skyrocket. Well it wouldn't skyrocket that much because the bike market, market price for these these various reasons is considerably higher than the free market price. Uh all right, so you have the black market, and I say the black market only is really patronized by people who know about these things, so it sort of cuts out a lot of the public. Um, the uh it's considerable black market activity during World War II, as patriotic uh, <laughs> as the war effort was. Uh, and uh, so, the, 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 as I say, there was this illegal, uh, illegal activity going on. One of the things that happens uh, when you have, well, the, the way uh, price control was finally eliminated in World War II is all, it had enorm- hundreds of thousands of OPA people uh, enforcing this stuff, enforcing price control. Even our beloved president uh, began, got his start in life as a in um, the rationing division of OPA. Of, uh, might, might be certain symbolism there. At any rate, uh, the uh, so there were hundreds of thousands of people working in this thing, enforcing the regulations and so forth. Even so, there was, as I say, there were lots of black markets. And after the war was over, they eliminated some of the price controls, but the because the climber went up, but the shortages still remain. And then they said, well, you couldn't blame it on the war effort. Well, there's a particularly a meat shortage, a big beef shortage, as there was this year for a short time. The big meat shortage. I mean, it's just impossible to find meat. One of the things I should mention here, uh, price controls in general, before I get to that, is that usually price controls are enforced at the equilibrium point. Where the idea is, well, prices are going up too much. We have to freeze them as they are. This is what happened in on August 1571. You freeze, try to freeze prices. Well, the thing that happens is that the next day, when people wake up on August 16th, it seems like nothing has changed. There's no problem, no shortages. All you guys are alarmists because the next day, the equilibrium price on August 16th is not much different than the equilibrium price on August 15th. So for a little while, for a short period of time, it looks as if the price controls are working. <coughs> the public has a mistaken sense of euphoria. <coughs> then what begins to happen is as the, as the time goes on, There's an increasing discrepancy between the official price, the fixed price control, and the free market price, which keeps changing. Uh, It can either go up or go down. Usually in an inflationary period, of course, the free market price keeps going up because the demand curve keeps going up as uh, as, uh, more money is poured into the system by the government. And so you have a sort of a secular increase in demand curves. And as the demand curve keeps going up over time, the shortage... Starts developing, and gets worse and worse. So it means that after the price control is in, is in action for a few weeks, a few months, a year or something, the whole thing has to fall apart. More and more shortages develop, more and more black markets. In other words, the more the, the more the price control continues in force, the worse things get. So by the end of World War II, the public had, had it, and they say the excuse of the war was now over. And so by 1946, the, there was a fantastic meat shortage. Was meat was just couldn't could not be found to the point where uh, insulin, what could be found for diabetics, and so forth. So uh, President Truman, the clamor came out was eliminate uh, price controls, including meat controls, and an, 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 an enormous hysteria came up. For example, the New York Post, I remember very vividly. Uh, a, for those who are not New Yorkers, a highly liberal paper, uh, was hysterical about you. you must not repeal OPA. If you repeal OPA prices will, will quadruple, quintuple, will, you know, go up 200 fold, etc. cetera. There's a fantastic fear of freedom developed. What would happen? You can't, can't eliminate price control. It's part of the American heritage. And then prices would the gouging, uh, gouging entrepreneurs would charge uh, infinite prices and so forth. Uh, even the, disc, the local disc jockey at the time, the late Martin Block was the preeminent disc jockey of his period, he was never involved in politics at all, suddenly came on the air, and I, I remember this vividly personally, and pleaded with everybody to write letters to your congressman, to keep OPA because otherwise prices would go through the roof. But even this jockeys were becoming political pund- economic pundits at the time. Well, so Truman was faced with the following choice, which he's this is the choice that I think he reported to the, to his, to the public. He said, "Well, uh, there was no meat to be found. What are you going to do about it?" Well, he said he was faced with, this cho- with a choice of mobilizing the National Guard drafting and sending the troops, calling the troops out and nationalizing the meat industry, uh, going out into the farms. He said, well, he thought of of, of confiscating the uh, the uh, meat packers, you know, that, that would have been easy, but he said he admitted the meat, he couldn't, that wouldn't make much point, because the meat packers didn't have any meat either, and Swift and Armour said they didn't have any meat. They couldn't nationalize them. So he said, well, I would have had to go mobilize the troops and nationalize all the farms, go out there and nationalize, you know, the, you know, nationalize the ranches and livestock farms, and then, and drag the cattle out. He said he gave serious thought to this. He said, well, he figured it was impractical. <laughs> uh, fortunately for the American public, fortunately for freedom, it was an election year, 1946, congressional election year. The Democrats were in grave trouble. You can imagine what would happen on the farm vote <laughs> if, uh, if suddenly soldiers with a fixed bayonets would come in and seize the cattle. So, with, with great reluctance, President Truman reported, well, because it was impractical, and probably the public wouldn't like it too much, I hereby, uh, gave up this whole term, I hereby uh, eliminate price controls on meat, and within a week, the whole meat shortage was over, only to reappear, of course, this year when, when price controls came back again. So, uh, one would have thought that was a lesson for the government, but, uh, for economists, but I guess memory is fairly short in this whole, in this whole area. Uh, one of the things about when price controls break down when the, when the shortages increase when there are black markets uh, the, the, the well the, the, the temptation of government the government is faced as my late mentor Professor von Mises would say uh, all government intervention in the market creates extra problems it doesn 't solve anything it finally creates some more problems, and then the government has to intervene more or else give up the whole business so Truman was faced with this sort of crunch either. Send the troops out and nationalize the farmers, <coughs> or draft the farmers, or something like that, or give the whole thing up, eliminate the, the whole control regulation, which is what the government hates to do. Uh, so usually the temptation is to escalate enforcement. So penalties are only 10 years in jail, and make it 30 years. Uh, execute them, kill them, <laughs> torture them. Now, I, I, you think I kid you on this, but in other, uh, and other, gov- other climes and other cultures, uh, which did not have the, <laughs> the American <laughs> reluctance to inflict this sort of punishment, uh, all, all bets all stops were pulled out. The famous case, of the, uh, for example, is the Emperor Diocletian, uh, the late Roman Empire, who was inflating like mad. I'll get to the causes of inflation later on, but he was inflating the, cur- the currency by clipping coins. That was, that was the ancient primitive method of doing it. And so prices kept going up. But finally, Emperor Diocletian issued his decree Freezing everything, all right, from now on, uh, the, the, the so-and-so is three drachmas and such and such as two denarii and all that. He had a completely, very detailed list. He even had things like writing of the first quality, five denarii, writing of the second quality, three denarii. Who, who decided how, you know, the quality of the writing is an interesting point. At any rate, he has a whole detailed list. And he did, he made no bones about it. He wasn't limited by any civil, American Civil Liberties Union or the Fifth <laughs> Amendment. He said, anybody who disobeys this regulation, death, you know, immediate immediate capital punishment. And he killed a lot of people, but it didn't work. Even the death penalty uh, could not hold back the tide of, uh, of black markets. And the price controls finally fell apart and so forth. And then uh, he had to give it up. He said, okay, heck with it. Um, that was the emperor. That was the first big example of price control. Unfortunately, that was not heated very mo- well either. Uh, we all know about the guillotine in the French Revolution when the Jacobins were killing a lot of people, aristocrats. But we don't know what we, what isn't focused in on is a, m- probably a majority of these killings were killing not, not of aristocrats and Tories and Bourbons, but poor merchants were violating the price control regulations. The government was inflating like mad, this time paper money. A maximum, a law of a maximum price control regulations on food, etc. And, uh, there was a shortage of food in the cities due to this, and then the regions were starving and rioting and all that. And of course, who gets blamed? The poor merchants. First you loot the, first the mobs loot the, uh, loot the stores of the merchants, get rid of all the food, and then, then what? And what's, uh, that's the next step. Uh, then you shoot the, well, in that, those days you guillotine the merchants for violating the uh, price control regulations, engaging in black market activities. So when the Jacobins tried the guillotine, that didn't work very well either. Uh, the more recent example of uh, escalated enforcement, uh, the old pal uh, Chiang Kai-shek in China. Uh, one of the reasons for the so-called loss of China, is that, is that again, something which only economists seem to know about, is that Chiang Kai-shek was engaging in very severe inflation, uh, money supply, pumping in money like mad, and prices were engaged in a runaway escalation upward. <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. And as if, 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 if that were not bad enough, Chang then imposed very severe price control. No, no, we have to freeze prices at such and such a level. And then it didn't work, and they had black markets, and price controls were being disobeyed. so he escalated the enforcement. And the result of this was the, the food didn't get to the urban areas, and the urban, the urban areas were starving, and the, and the peasants couldn't get manufactured goods and so forth, and the whole thing, the economic process was breaking down. And then, in order, and then he, Chiang kept escalating the punishment. Finally, he decided to shoot the merchants in the public square of Shanghai. And he shoot all black marketeers and <laughs> line them up as a public example. Well, I mean, that, that, that tore it. That was about it. Because the merchants, the last support of the Chiang Kai-shek regime, then figure, well, you know, communists aren't going to be worse than this. The guys, shooting us. <laughs> uh, also the communists were quite shrewd on this. And when they got in, when they took over an area, they stopped inflating the money supply and the inflation problem was licked. So this is one of the one of the key reasons for the uh, Chinese uh, loss of confidence, loss of, and Chang's credibility, as we call it now. I mean, that was uh, he had it. As a matter of fact, um, using this uh, insight, uh, I think it was I forget now when it was, about three four years ago. I think when Marshal Key was then the head of the South Vietnam, started shooting merchants in the square of Saigon for disobeying the price control regulations. I figure that was it. He'd had it. <laughs> Uh, that was the end of the Vietnam, uh, paper because he was following almost classically the route that Chiang Kai-shek had followed. So escalation, so even if, even if we're gonna wind up enforcing the gas rationing with, you know, death, immediate death on sight, it's not gonna, it's not gonna, uh, help the situation, not gonna help enforce the situation. Another interesting story about price control is that, uh, uh, Hitler, of course, had price control during World War II because Hitler was one of the follow of modern economic uh, science. And when, when American forces of occupation came, came and occupied Germany, uh, the American theoreticians, the idea at the time, the so-called Morgenthau Plan, was to de-industrialize Germany, punish Germany by turning Germany back to a pastoral pastoral country. Uh, so. As a, for, as, a method of, as a method of doing this, as a conscious method of de-industrializing Germany and turning it back to a pastoral society, we impose severe price controls. It was the same economists and theoreticians who in favor of price controls in the United States in order, in order, quote, to save capitalism, unquote, were doing the same thing in Germany in order to crush it, to <laughs> smash Germany forevermore. Uh, so they imposed severe price control. They tried to roll prices back to 1939 level. Uh, and, of course, prices is going way up, uh, the free market price is going way up since then. The result of this was the following. Um, I guess you all know the stories, of, I, I don't know, I don't know. maybe, I'm, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm the only one old enough to remember them. The stories about buying girls with candy bars, that sort of stuff in Germany. Well, because the Germans were starving. The reason why the Germans were starving is not because the German industrial machine had collapsed. It was because all the stuff that had been produced before the war, in other words, before 1939 was a fantastically, the price controls were way, way below the free market price. They had to suffer severe financial losses to produce them. As a result, the Germans didn't, make any, didn't produce any food, didn't make any uh, candy bars, didn't, didn't, didn't make any uh, clothing or any of the necessaries. Instead of that, they only produced, they shifted their resources, producing goods which were, were new, and which therefore were not, not under any price control regulation. Because the price control regulation usually has a you know, historical base. You freeze it as of August 15th, or whatever it is, or freeze it as of 1939. Well, if the new product wasn't around on August 15th or wasn't around in 1939, how do you set the price for it? As a result, the new products were free of price control, and so the Germans were producing toys like mad. All sorts of new toys, uh, hula hoops, whatever, instead of producing food, clothing, shelter, etc. So in 1948, after two, three years of this uh, horror, uh, finally, uh, sanity... Uh, uh, <laughs> One out, largely through the influence of a couple of students of these As a matter of fact, uh, and they said, look, they, the only way you can ever solve the German economic situation is repeal the price control, and which they did. And very shortly after that, the whole shortage was over. Girls were no longer available for candy bars, and you had the so-called economic miracle of West Germany, following shortly after that. So once again, uh, price controls were the villain. But here, uh, the interesting, interesting sideline is that we did it consciously to crush the German economic system. <clears throat> Uh, okay, the, uh, <clears throat> when phase one came in, uh, as I said, there was the, the uh, reaction of the, uh, common almond crunch and the servicemen, et cetera, the controls, are obviously, the price controls, obviously, didn't, have not worked very well, to be clear phase one, everybody sort of hailed it, terrific, fantastic, beautiful, strong president, all the rest of the, all the, rest of the malarkey. And then after a while, the thing began to, things began to happen. Uh, so the freeze wasn't working so well. We went over to phase two, which was sort of a moderate control program. You allow certain increases. Again, of course, it's politically allowed. Uh, and then uh, what happened was, for example, in phase two is that you have things like this. Why do you... You know, the government would allow a, a business to raise its price if it was making low profits. If, on the other hand, it was making high profits, you force them to lower the price. So what began to happen with phase two is that firms began to look around desperately for ways not to make profits. It's easy not to make profits. You just sort of let it rip. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and what, and, the, and Business Week would report, a Business Week, I recommend as a, not not for its uh, position, but as a, as a news magazine, not for its uh, ideological views. Uh, Business Week reported, well, firms were having to do some things like this. First of all, the old expense account, I'm rolling back. Ah, uh-huh, well, uh, live it up, Jim, because, you know, <laughs> we don't want to make too much high profits, to go to the, go to the Pavilion, whatever, and, you know, and Hilton's, et cetera, and don't go first class on planes, et cetera. Uh, also, also, businesses started having their uh, annual meetings in the Bahamas instead of in New York. And as one as one executive said, well, if we have to if we have to be inefficient, we may as well enjoy it. <laughs> so that sort of attitude comes, and of course this means the system begins to crack. And phase three then comes in, which was a little bit better, and then phase four, uh, then phase three and a half, freezing everything again with the with the control with the uh, after the uh, inflation of food prices, and then the severe freeze coming in in 1973, the time when the uh, economy is booming and it was a scarcity anyway. And as a result of which, we suddenly have a beef shortage, can't find any beef, suddenly gasoline shortage. And we have, begin to have, uh, then we go into phase four, which is slight, slightly better than phase three and a half, and not as good as phase three, and whatever. So we're still in a situation where there's heavy price controls uh, throughout the system. <coughs> uh, and one, of the, one of the ways in which a shortage which I say always appears with price when the price control is held for a while underneath the uh, equilibrium point. One of the ways of allocating this scarcity is government rationing, which of course we're now beginning to see with gasoline, et cetera. Uh, rationing uh, sets in its own interesting system, uh, which again we saw in World War II. Uh, rationing is very peculiar kind of, in the first place it means that you have a second money. It's, it's, very, it's, it's bizarre that, just from that point of view. Instead of just having money, I mean, usually if you, you want to buy something, here's the price. You know what the price is. If you have the money, you buy it. If you're willing to spend the money, or if you don't, you don't buy it. Now, in addition to having the money in there, you also have to have ration tickets. So the ration ticket becomes a sort of a second, a parallel money. Also, um, the ration ticket means that the government is allocating the resources by its own favoritism, by political favoritism. Uh... You, you, and you're for example, during World, World War II, the big thing was to be an essential war worker. If you were an essential war worker, engaged in essential war work, then you get unlimited amount of, vast amount of ration tickets. If, on the other hand, you were a poor or nothing much to do with the war effort, you starve, or whatever. Uh, if, for example, on the gasoline front, there was uh, several kinds of ration tickets. Everybody was supposed to share equally, suffer equally. That was the it's always the slogan of the rationers. Well, during on the and uh, World War II, people suffered unequally because uh, there were several degrees of ration tickets. The sh- the poor, the average citizen had an a, a ration ticket, which entitled them very little gasoline. As a matter of fact, by the way, this is a point of mild interest. The, the government highway thing, this, the speed limit enforced during World War II was 30 35 miles an hour. <laughs> uh, we might see that again, who knows. But at any rate, the, the, the A ticket was just a few gallons a week was allowed to the person. And then there was a B and the C was the sort of unificent, and the X ticket was unlimited. In the first place, the congressman, over 200 congressmen asked for and received from the OPA the X brand, in other words, unlimited gasoline for congressmen. Absolutely, boy, they are obviously engaged in essential war work. <laughs> the top priority. <laughs> uh, second of all, <laughs> The, you had things like um, the truckers had unlimited amounts uh, for sort of the tea ticket. And the truckers began to sell the excess, their excess tea tickets to other people. You began to have leakages. This is Henry Hazlitt's great novel, a uh, uh, great economic political novel called The Great Idea. It's now called Time Will Run Back. It has a whole story about starts it starts up with a communist system of the future and winds up with a free market by logical deduction. And the first thing that happens is some some brain in the, in the communist system says, hey, why don't we allow people to exchange their ration tickets? It's sort of a new, big, new thing. Why don't we allow the people who don't smoke cigarettes to sell their cigarette tickets to the guys that don't eat anchovies or something and then, you know, sell the anchovy tickets? And then both people will be better off. And they start with that, and after several chapters, you wind up with a free market. The interesting thing is, of course, the, the government didn't allow anybody to exchange their ration tickets. I predict, of course, when they come the gasoline rationing, you won't be able to exchange your gasoline tickets. If each, if, if each person is allowed... 20 gallons a week or something, and you don't drive your car, you're not allowed to sell your 18 gallons to somebody else who will drive more. So, because that would benefit both people, the exchange would be the market, the, the ugly head of the market would suddenly rise up again, we got to clamp down on it. So, as a result of this, uh, you had truckers illegally selling their surplus T-tickets. Uh, you have things like the, the, the C-people, you have things like C-tickets were given to... to uh, well, let's say the Sharpies would get the C tickets. In other the average Joe would have his A ticket and only have a few gallons a week. The Sharpies had their almost, uh, certain, you know, munificent sea tickets. And the Times or the News would print pictures uh, from what uh, signs I have, Aqueduct, you know, Aqueduct parking lot filled with sea tickets. Uh, <laughs> this caused a lot of uh, class envy or resentment. <laughs> uh, then you have things like, um, Then you have things, literally, OPA enforcement agents went out and checked up. Everybody was, you weren't supposed to drive, you had a seat ticket, say you were supposed to only drive, you were only supposed to stop uh, at a gas station, you know, a certain amount, you were only supposed to walk 10 feet beyond the gas station and no more, and you literally had spies, OPA spies, going around checking up on, uh, your park near a theater, that means you're going to the theater, if you have a seat ticket, you're not allowed to go to the theater, and they they clamp down on you, arrest you, you know, take your seat ticket away. You know, tear up your seat ticket in front of you, and that's stuff. it's <laughs> that was, And that was literally going on. It was an interesting book by Richard Lingman called You Know There's a War On, which talks about what was going on. It's not an analytical book, but I think it is, is, um, tell, tells, you know, tells these stories of what actually happened. Well, one of the things that happened was, was this, this ration ticket system. Uh, well, first of all, I would say, just on a ration ticket, I think the whole thing is absolutely monstrous. It's totalitarian. It's, it's despotic. Nobody should have a right to tell anybody else how many how many things to buy, how many uh, how many lights to turn on, how many how heat he's supposed to have his uh, room at, and all the rest of it. So it's totalitarian, monstrous, whatever. Well, any any value judgment you can think of I go along with on that. Well one of the things that happened was a heroic mafia came to the picture <laughs> in World War Two <laughs> to relieve as a uh, leading the people's struggle, (laughs) leading the people's struggle against gas rationing. (laughs) And they they counterfeited an enormous number of seat tickets. (laughs) It was easy to counterfeit seat tickets. And so uh, it was estimated that 15% of all the gasoline sold in America was was sold at counterfeit seat tickets. And 30% in New York. Uh. <laughs> so uh, these things are things to remember as, as rationing falls you know, in on us. <laughs> um. <laughs> There's also the... Uh, <laughs> my, uh, my, my wife's sweet old grandma, when she died, uh, was a source of embarrassment of the family to find out that she had in her basement an enormous amount of sugar this is the old. This is the, this is the great the great people's uh, revolutionary movement. of Sugar hoarding during the war. We were told never buy sugar because somehow the, our boys rely on you're not buying it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this. Um, <laughs> well, let's 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 go into the. Uh, I think there's time to go into the energy crisis, and, and exactly what how the energy crisis. First of all, if there is an to the extent that there is an energy shortage. Obviously, the solution to it, there will not be a shortage if you allow the price to go up. If you allow the price to go up, uh, this will ration the existing amount to those who will ration it voluntarily to those who, who will willingly want to buy, pay, spend more on it, those who consider it more important, and so forth. So you have a smooth form of voluntary rationing where, let's say, that those who are most interested in buying the gasoline or the heating oil will buy it. But secondly, by allowing the price to go up, you'll stimulate more supply after a while. Uh, more, more wells, marginal wells will come, in, oil wells will come into, uh, into production, uh, distribution will be speeded up, uh, <coughs> etc. <cetera. coughs> so, by allowing the price to, to rise, even, even, if, even if there's a scarce supply, the supply curve is going to the left, by allowing the a free pricing system. Uh, by allowing the price to go up, it will do two things. One, you will voluntarily ration. So the consumers, in accordance with who is mo- most interested and in most uh, uh, important use, to buy uh, the, the material for most important use, uh, will voluntarily ration themselves in accordance with a higher price. And also, this will stimulate an increase in uh, supply. So at least you will allow. You, there won't be any more shortages. There won't be any more black markets. There won't be any more need for rationing and so forth. That's the, the first thing to do. Uh, the second thing to remember also is going on the energy crisis. The government, by various methods, has created it, has restricted supply and increased demand artificially. And so the thing to do, of course, is eliminate that. Um, well, the, on, the, on the oil caper, uh, it starts with the oil prolation laws. The oil prolation laws be, uh, began in America in approximately 1931-32. When uh, enormous oil fields were discovered, vast and superabundant oil fields were discovered in, in Texas and Oklahoma, the great Texas, Oklahoma, fine. As a result of which, the price of crude oil plummeted uh, straight down. The oil industry get, got rather hysterical about this and called upon the state for bail them out. This is known as a partnership now of government and industry. Uh, not, oil, not all oil men, but enough oil men to, to, to count. So the classic cartel situation comes into practice. Uh, the government, the first thing the government did is they, they outlawed all further production of oil until we can straighten the whole thing out. Uh, they called it an oil moratorium. And to enforce the moratorium, the governors of Texas and Oklahoma declared martial law and set the troops out into the oil fields. Especially because at night, you see a lot of the, a lot of the guys were wildcatting, drilling their own oil and hot, you know taking the hot oil out. and So they came in with fixed bayonets and, bayonets and guns at the ready to shoot all <coughs> any wildcat oil driller who was drilling his own oil, getting it out, of the, out of the ground and shipping it out. So they did shoot some people. The, the governor of Oklahoma was a colorful, did this with the colorful Alfalfa Bill Murray, wild Bill Alfalfa Bill Murray. Uh, so there was an oil moratorium that straightened it. Was, stop production, the first thing they did, stop that. And then the, the 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 states and the federal government collaborating set up oil proration laws. The oil proration law uh, works something as follows. The uh, the in, in Texas, for example, which is the largest oil state. There's a uh, old geezer, usually a retired general, who's the head of a, something called the Texas Railroad Commission. As far as I know, it has nothing to do with railroads. It's only involved in oil, setting oil maximum oil quotas. So every month, the old geezer decide how much oil is allowed to be produced next month, and he said, okay, from now on, next month, you can only produce whatever, you know, a uh, million barrels of crude oil. And then each 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 oil well in Texas has a quota, like, you know, you're 0.005% of the oil, oil in Texas, and then you're restricted to that. So in other words, the supply curve of oil is pushed drastically to the left. The price of crude oil is raised. This, of course, pushes the Supply of gasoline and heating and oil all the stuff that comes out of crude to the left and raises their price. This has been going on since 1932, and every month, the old geezer puts out this maximum quota. And, and the, the, the excuse for this, I means uh, for an economist, the excuse for this is, is, is laughable. They'll say, well, we need the, the Texas Railroad Commission to do this because they have to adjust supply to demand. You know, I mean, that's what the market's supposed to be doing, adjusting supply to demand. No, no, they need this because otherwise, otherwise what? Otherwise too much will be produced. The price of crude oil will fall, we can't have any of that. So that's the first, that's the first chronic thing, a very basic chronic thing that raises the price of crude oil and limits the production. Uh, now this has been done in the name of conservation. I'll get to that, a conservation caper later on. But, uh, it's done in the name of conservation. Well, we, we want less to be produced because then the future generations will have an all that jazz. However, along with the oil production, oil peroration laws, came oil import restrictions. Keep foreign oil out. If you're really interested in conserving American oil, you know, keeping all that oil in Texas, then you then want to encourage the importation of foreign oil like mad, right? right. However, they did not. <laughs> they kept out foreign oil, thereby shifting the supply curve of oil to the left, uh, starting with tariffs winding up with oil import quotas. So in order to import oil, you have to buy somebody else's quota right. And so in other words, if Shell Oil had, five or t- say, 10% of the imports in 1950-something, whenever the thing came in, uh, if you're a new oil, oil importer, you can't import oil. You haven't got the right. It's illegal. You have to buy the 10% or the 2% from Shell at a you know, high price. This, of course, keeps out uh, competitors and keeps out the keeps the oil imports from coming in. This, I think, has been repealed about a year ago. But the point is, this has been the basic policy for quite a while. So this, uh, well, that's that's that, that's the that's the restriction on on domestic and foreign oil. And then, in addition to that, the government is sitting, the federal government of the United States, is sitting on an enormous amount of oil. Enormous! It's been sitting on it for 50 years now, and nothing has been done with it. This is called conservation or something. It's called withholding from the market, thereby raising the price. Uh, there's the Elk Hills Reserve, I think, in California, which has God knows how many billions and billions of barrels. And there's the Teapot Dome, which, of course, is a famous case famous in American history where the poor guy was crucified because he wanted to at least get the oil out. He might have been a crook, but at least he was trying to produce some oil. Well, finally, President Nixon's latest speech, he's going to start producing a little bit from the Elk Hills Reserve, but the point is it's been kept off the market all this time, thereby raising the price of crude oil and the price of gasoline and the whole business and restricting the supply. Uh, then in addition to this, uh, Then in addition to this, and this this goes for all the shortages, uh, I haven't got time to go to the other products yet, Uh, there are the environmentalists, the environmentalist crazies as I like to call them, uh, who have now stopped, have stopped, with absolute determination and and, uh, will, have tried to plug the gap and try to restrict production anywhere they can find their, get their hands on. So as a result of this, oil refineries can't be produced for several years because God knows why. Uh, They pollute the air or they deface the the landscape, Um, whatever. So this is cut down on the production of oil refineries. Also, of course, the Alaskan pipeline, which would supply about 2 million barrels a day, which is pretty hefty, has been held up for many years because of the environmentalists. They're finally getting going, but it's been held up for many, many years. As far as I can make out, the Alaskan keeper—I've done some reading in the Alaskan question—the um, the, the environmentalist problem seems to be twofold. One is it would deface the defaced landscape. In other words, the beautiful, uh, unmarked, uh, unmarked by man—that is, uh, plateau and steps and whatever they got up there in Alaska—would be defaced by the fact that there'd be a pipeline running through it. That's it's really, it's really tough. <laughs> and I noticed the logical implication of this, and if this was. If the of the environmentalists, have been in control in 1776, we never have anything beyond you know a little, little fort here on the tip of Manhattan because <laughs> you couldn't chop down a tree, you couldn't do anything. Uh, so that's one problem. There's a scenic problem, which is something is not, not I do not find a grabber, I'll put it that way. And the second problem is the caribou. The caribou like to walk uh, across the tundra. <laughs> and if uh, if you have a pipeline which has to be dug down deep because of a because of thermal whatever heat in the soil, then the, the poor caribou wouldn't be able to walk across and they'd be confused when <laughs> they'd die out. <laughs> I swear, that's the, uh, that, and th- then, the, then the oil company said, okay, we'll build a ramp, we'll get bridges across the pipeline so the caribou can walk, but then they said, well, yeah, but the environmentalists said, who knows, I mean, maybe the caribou wouldn't like the bridge, they like the tundra, they wouldn't walk across it, and for this we have to suffer and uh, not have any you know, uh, gas rationing. <laughs> uh, the Alaskans themselves are rather annoyed at this whole thing is um, the uh, the editor of the Anchorage Daily Times wrote, wrote a letter and said that of the 300,000 people in Alaska, at least 299,000 are very bitter about this holding up you know, see, the uh, Alaskan pipeline. And the other people, he said, the other thousand, quote, feel a kinship with all the kooks who want to lock up Alaska as some sort of permanent wilderness. <laughs> uh, it's pretty clear the people in Alaska don't want to live in a permanent tundra. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> okay, so that's the uh, that's the uh, the oil caper. Then a, a very related sort of thing is, is for example, the the crippling of uh, natural uh, natural gas and coal. Uh, natural gas is a, is a substitute for oil and, and heating, etc. Well, natural gas for the last 25 years, for an obscure reason, at least I'm sure to me. Uh, has been regulated, the price of, of which has been regulated at the wellhead in interstate commerce by the Federal Power Commission, way, way below the free market level. And of course, as, as inflation proceeds, it's even further below. Now, why it's been done that way, whether it's been done for ideological reasons or because the gas buyers want it, I don't know, or a combination. <clears throat> at any rate, this has created an increasing shortage over the years of natural gas, especially in interstate commerce. There's plenty of natural gas in Texas itself, in Oklahoma, because there's no price control int- intrastate. Uh, the result of this, uh, there's lots of natural gas reserves. Everybody knows there's lots of natural gas on the ground, but nobody's looking for it because it doesn't pay anybody to look for it because the prices are held way below the free market. As a result, there's an increasing natural gas shortage. As the natural gas shortage, people turn to oil. So you have a, you know, a cut in the supply of natural gas, an increase in the price of oil, increase in demand for oil artificially, which adds to the oil problem. Uh, and, adds, and created a fuel oil the heating oil shortage I should say for uh, last year and it will continue so natural gas is crippled and natural gas is artificially crippled by the government this raises the demand for oil and this adds to the oil shortage same thing happened to coal uh, coal has been crippled in many ways there's lots of coal around too lots of coal uh, coal has been crippled in several directions first place John L. Lewis the uh, beloved <laughs> uh, leader of the coal union for many years was a very good economist. He understood exactly what was going on. He knew that if unions pushed up wage rates, it would cause unemployment. He knew that very well. He was a brilliant economist. On the other hand, he was in favor of it. <laughs> Since he was in the union and his comrades were union uh, uh, members for a long time, uh, he said, okay, we'll disemploy them. I mean, How about them? They're not union members. They're apprentices or whatever. As a result of which you have a, uh, and he did this in collaboration with a lot of the large mine owners who wanted to disemploy their small, smaller competitors. As result of which, you have a deliberate policy of a mine workers union for many years, since the 30s, to cripple the coal industry, to shift the supply curve to the left, to raise the wage rates for those remaining, those oldsters who have stolen the coal business. Everybody else is in Appalachia are living as hillbillies or dropouts, <coughs> forced dropouts in Appalachia. Well, this cuts the, a lot of the coal supply. It's one factor. Second factor is the, strip, the environmentalist crazies back again. Uh, in two directions. One is story over strip mining. Now strip mining is, is quite cheap. Uh, it's this forty percent of the domestic coal miner's strip mining. Now, there is a problem with private property of the former down the road down the hill in strip mining, but the basic the basic uh, I think charge needs to be aesthetic. You strip the strip mining causes an ugly landscape. The hill was you know grooved forever or whatever it is. Uh, Again, this is not the sort of thing I f- a problem I find a grabber. I think it's more important to have uh, coal and, and fuel for the cities and factories than there is to worry about the Kentucky hillside. Uh, at any rate, the, the, the strip mining history caused all sorts of laws to be passed to restrict strip mining, cripple it, and so forth. And the second environmentalist thrust there was the air pollution. The dirty, the dirty coal is a dirty you know, fuel. Sulfur is poured into the air, and so forth. Um, and the Clean Air Act of 1970 drastically federal Clean Air Act drastically lowered the supply of coal, which means people have to shift to oil for heat, which raises the demand for oil, and again you have intensify the oil shortage. Now I'm not really in favor of air pollution. I'm not. I don't know much about it. I think uh, I think the public media has really been has been uh, one sided in the fact that we've only heard the environmentalist side of the story. The anti environmentalists claim that the Sulfur really disappears pretty quickly and doesn't really harm anybody, but at any rate, certainly the restrictions came on awfully fast, let's put it that way, and awfully suddenly, and awfully severely, <coughs> and again causing these effects. Uh, so coal has been crippled, natural gas has been crippled by government action, and also electric power. Electric power uh crippled. First of all, Elect- uh, utilities can't build uh, nuclear power plants because people are worried about nuclear uh, radiation, etc., although the experts claim it's no real problem. Uh, secondly, they can't, for example, Con Edison has been trying to build a Storm King plant for God knows how many years up the Hudson. The environmentalists have stopped it because it, it ruins the Hudson. The Storm King mountain view is spoiled. Uh, again, it's not something I, it's not, a, it's not an argument to which I feel I can do full justice. <laughs> So this is, this has stopped the Storm King plant for, for, many years. Uh, presumably they finally get it, but it's held the thing up a lot. It cuts down the supply of electricity, raises the price, et cetera. Raises the energy, increases the energy shortage. And finally there's the whole problem of electrical utilities anyway. Electric utilities are compulsory monopolies. You can't, you can't compete with Con Ed. Con Ed has a monopoly. Each, each electrical industry firm in this area has a monopoly granted to it by the government of this area you can't go into competition. You have a compulsory monopoly, and secondly, you have a fixed rate of return guaranteed, fixed rate of profit guaranteed by the government. So the rate is set by the government action, uh, fixed, pleasant rate of profit is set, not very high. On the other hand, it's guaranteed, so it makes a big difference. So it means there's no competition in the electrical industry. It means there's re- research and development and comp- all sorts of technological improvements in the electrical industry is, is, is cut out, is eliminated, it's restricted. And uh, also, the way the, the the rate is set is is a fixed rate of return of capital. In other words, let's say six percent. So this means that the, you, the the rate is set in such a way you got a certain profit per rate of per amount of capital. This means the higher your capital, the better off you are, regardless of whether the capital is any good or not. As a result of this, the electrical industry is hardly ever depreciates its its, its, its equipment. It depreciates equipment very very slowly. Because why do it if you have your the $10,000 machine, which is half-dead, so to speak, uh, doesn't make any difference. It's worth $8,000 on the books. You'll get, you get your profit rate determined on that basis. As other of which, while IBM, for example, a very progressive company, depreciates its equipment very fast, say in 10 years, uh, AT&T and Con Ed depreciate their equipment over 50 years, hang on to their obsolete equipment until the last possible ounce of squeeze out of it, thereby, again, repressing and restricting and Crippling technological developments and improvements and productivity in the utility industry in general. Well, that of course adds to the energy uh, shortage. Um, Well, as we have political rationing, uh, as I say, we'll see congressmen voting themselves uh, the unlimited uh, supply of gasoline and so forth. We'll also see (coughs) we also already seeing rationing of airline flights, uh, which is a beautiful cartel arrangement, where the government, the CAB (Civil Aeronautics Board), tells the airlines, You've "Got to cut out your airline flights." And the airlines, of course, receive this this dread information with enormous enthusiasm, <laughs> they've been competing, even though their competition is, is fairly limited, as we'll get to later on by the CAB, by the existence of the CAB. Still, they were competing, and they had. They found out that there's not every flight was like a cattle car and there was even some empty seats. And so we're now, boy oh boy, we're patriotically going along, we're cutting out half our flights and every car, every plane will be packed. So once again you have the government as cartelists, uh, restricting airlines competition, service, etc. Uh, but we'll get more to the airlines and the cartel thing later. Uh, I'd like to wind up this homily on price control and rationing. A little quote. If I can find it. <laughs> uh, yeah. From a column, a column of a, a journalist who, uh, is not, dis- let's put let's, let's it this way, he's not distinguished as an analyst, uh, or as a knowledgeable on the market, but he's got a great spirit, especially in relation to the government. This is Pete uh, Hamill's column of Monday, New York Post, uh, just a few lines from it. He's reacting viscerally, instinctively, uh, I think correctly, to the, to the blo- government blackout, and the energy, the gas rationing, and all the rest of it. He says, now they've even taken away our skyline. It had been hours since that day in 1945 when we all raced to the rooftops of Brooklyn to see those minion lights blink on again, dazzling, joyous, triumphant, and unbelievably beautiful, signaling, signaling to us that the war was over. I remember a woman crying on the rooftop that time, knowing that the long night of the Second World War was finished, that New York was blazing again with its electric beauty, The blackouts and dimouts were behind us, the troop ships would soon be home, the New York skyline, ours forever. And now it's gone again. Moving along the city's highways, there's a joyless sense of defeat and loss in the town. It's as if the malignant hand of Richard Nixon had reached out from the bunker in Camp David <laughs> <laughs> and pulled a light switch on all of us, spreading his personal darkness. <laughs> the Empire State Building is a blinking red light than the dark. A great pile of downtown buildings, Truman Capote's diamond iceberg, is a hole in the night sky. And, and by the end of this thing, he says, uh, we are overdue for a rebellion against the corrupt criminal government in Washington. And now we have one opportunity to make that rebellion overt. Turn on all your lights. Drive 65 miles an hour. <laughs> Will Rockefeller order airstrikes on the freeway to stop us. Refuse to turn down thermostats. Let Washington know we've made them again for liars and let's get back our skyline. <laughs> There's... Uh, there's several, a lot of shortages instead of just the energy shortage. Incidentally, on the energy, well, yeah, footnote on the energy shortage. The latest thing is, uh, is that they're planning to outlaw not just have gasoline rationing, but they're planning to outlaw ple- Sunday pleasure driving. And we're getting back to the World War II thing, the horror stories I was telling you last week about uh, OPA spies checking up at the and see if you're parked near a movie, which would imply that you were on a pleasure trip. Well, it's the same sort of thing. How are they going to enforce this? If they try to enforce out only pleasure driving, it's going to be a vast Gestapo wandering around, uh, making sure every car on Sunday is really going to the back and forth of a hospital, and uh, everything else is going to be uh, clamped down on. And then they also, then they figure, well, maybe it'd be easier to enforce it uh, by just simply closing down all the filling stations. You won't be able to get gas on Sunday. So I suppose a cute trick. On the other hand, what happens to the so-called essential driving? That you're traveling 100 miles to the hospital in an emergency, you run out of gas and Gasoline has been outlawed, well, I, just, I guess it's just too bad, instead of allowing the price system to ration the, uh, the, uh, the so-called scarce uh, material. So we're getting more and more to that sort of uh, situation. Uh, there are other shortages, too. The, there are particular, several shortages I might mention now. There's steel. Uh, steel suffered from a, steel was surplus. And you know, only a few years ago, there was a big so-called surplus of steel. A few years before that, there was a so-called shortage. So things happen obviously very rapidly in the steel business. Uh, what happened with the steel industry is that there were severe phase four price ceilings. Uh, the current, well, that's just the current price ceilings. There have been severe price phase two and three and a half also. Uh, the result of all of which was that the, uh, price of steel was held, has been held way below the free market price. And as a result, you had a steel shortage. The cost of living council, for example, and its wisdom, refused to grant a price increase, uh, because the excuse was, you see, the profits were had been had, were high. If you look at the profit uh, ratio, and you say, hey, the profits are pretty high, especially compared to 1969-70 when, when there was a recession, the so profits have increased quite a bit. Uh, then you say, well, we don't allow the price increase. Not realizing, of course, that the whole point of prices moving up and down is not to allow a rate of profit, but to allocate supply and demand in accordance with all market clearing, no shortage, no surplus uh, set up. Uh, as a matter of fact, the thing that just, that just happened, uh, today, uh, November the 20th, this, uh, today there was a, uh, latest issue of Human Events has come out. There's uh, a long, report of a speech by C. Jason, C. Jackson Grayson and C. Grayson Jackson. I always mix, mix that up. Who only a couple of years ago, a short couple of years ago, was the head of our August price control program. He's come out in a blistering attack on all price and wage controls, saying it won't work because of shortages. Of, Causes, uh, a hidden upgrading of workers, all the, all the, all the sort of stuff I've been telling you here. So, uh, unfortunately, all these guys get great when they're out of power. <laughs> when they're in power, they're not so hot. The same thing happened some years ago. Only the older citizens here will remember this. It was a gentleman who was the head of the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, named T. Coleman Andrews from Virginia. When he, re- after he retired from the IRS, he, He stumped the country from then on attacking income taxes going for the repeal of the income tax amendment. Uh, So I say out of power, I guess they learn from experience or something. (laughs) Uh, So (laughs) Uh, there's also a great statement that I found from uh, the executive vice president of American Standard Incorporated, a certain Bryce Durant, who said, quote, as long as we have price controls, it's hard to assess uh the The true price and availability of alternative materials it 's like playing with cards when you can 't read the numbers on them the good the summation of what happens when there 's no price system no free freely fluctuating price system to allocate resources uh, so uh that that was the steel uh problem also of course there's a big big shortage in paper uh really big big uh, my brother in law happens to be a printer. The South, and he has enough paper only because he stored up a lot of paper. He squirrelled away a lot of paper over the last six months or a year. So he saw a paper shortage emerging. Uh, the problem: Why is there a paper shortage? Well, for several reasons. One of the biggest factors, again, price controls. But what happens again? You see, when the, the, the phase one, two, three, and three and a half, etc., came in at a time during, during a recession, when um, when when um, uh, profits were low and so forth. And then the prices were then frozen in at a very low profit margins, and then profits go up, and, every, and the government says, that's a terrible thing. Profits are now increased. We won't allow you to increase prices. And so we're stuck with a paper uh, price way below the free market, and this generates a, generates a famous paper shortage. Uh, the, uh, there's no shortage, by the way, in lumber and plywood, uh, only in the paper part of the industry. Uh, the what happened at Lumber of Plywood was a healthy falling off of residential mortgages, uh, because of the <laughs> building crunch in 1973. So that's, and the interest rate going up. So that, so the shortages are a function again of the price control setup. Again, uh, not exactly creating a shortage, but by causing paper to be much, much less plentiful supply, declining supply. Uh, again, we have very, very heavily in the picture the environmental crazies, and I mentioned last week, who, because uh, paper is certainly the most, probably the most polluting of all industries, uh, and so it was a massive closing up of paper mills. Uh, all the old paper mills in Wisconsin and, and, and uh, other areas, New England, et cetera, were shut down, and of course that led to a, a dropping off, of shift to the left of the supply curve for paper, which of course created more of a shortage if you have, because uh, of the free market price then became even higher. Uh, I thought of a bone and in a speech I gave this week, last week on price controls, uh, which I may as well, uh, use here also, uh, which is that, uh, uh explaining the difference between scarcity and shortage, between the shift of the supply curve to the left and a shortage which means you can't get anything regardless at the existing price. Uh, Rembrandts, for example, are very, very scarce. Nobody ever talks about a Rembrandt shortage. I mean, if you want, if you want to buy a Rembrandt, there's always, they're always available for the two million or whatever you want to kick in <laughs> for it. But the point is, even though very, very scarce and not likely to increase in supply, <laughs> uh, <laughs> nobody worries. There's no griping thing about a Rembrandt shortage because if you pay the free market price, which balances supply and demand. Uh, also, there's a cement shortage, uh, which again the two things involved. And again, we have almost a litany here. You know what the two things are. One is price control, imposed during a period of recession, locked in with a very low rate of return uh, and so forth, and preventing uh, new plants from being built, new cement plants. And second, the environmentalists who are worrying about the uh, pollution caused by cement uh, uh, plants, leading to a closing down of a lot of old, the old cement plants and uh, decreasing the supply. So, uh, we're, we're also, of course, another thing is a final sort of icing of the cake is a cement. Factories tend to use a lot of natural gas as fuel, and there's a big natural gas shortage caused by the government's price regulations. So, there's all, all things. One thing about the market is everything impinges on everything else. Alright, uh, I come now to a couple of special areas of price control, which apart from the, from the, uh, from the current, uh, disaster, <coughs> there are certain areas of price control which have been going on for many years, and we have, where we have shortages sort of almost as a permanent Fact of life in America and almost almost accepted as such. Uh, because people really, we've gotten to this point, don't know any better. There is, for example, in New York City, we have a special, uh, it leaves the path a special permanent shortage, which most of the public doesn't know about in America, and that's an uh, apartment shortage. Uh, you can't find, uh, apartments, <coughs> uh, very easily, <coughs> if, if at all. The, uh, The apartment shortage in Manhattan, the chronic apartment shortage, this has been going on since approximately 1940, uh, came in, not coincidentally, with the rent control law, which was passed at the same time. New York City is one of the few cities in America that has rent control. I think there are a few others that, in a benighted fashion, just put it in, put it in again last year. But all the other uh, cities in the country and removed it at the end of World War II, we kept it, we kept it, continued on with it. The result of the, uh, the result of, Rent control, again, is during an inflationary period, so the demand curve keeps going up and the free market rents keep going up. The government then decrees the rents will remain the same, let's say, as, as, it, was, as it has been before. This means over the years, as the demand curve keeps going up because of inflation and the, and the rent is frozen at the old uh, rate, you know, the, the, the gap between demand and supply keeps increasing. The apartment shortage, in other words, the shortage of apartment space, which is what uh, Was being sold on the rent market, keeps increasing and being aggravated. Well, what happened was that uh, before, I like to tell a story, this is a story which I tell my kids, which I'm sure is not going to be repeated in our lifetime. And I told my my students the story about, like, you know, queuing up behind the butcher shop, and I'm pretty sure it is going to be repeated, but the the other story, I'm afraid, is not going to be repeated. That's the story of New York City in the Golden Age before 1940 when everybody moved every year. I mean, it was an incredible situation. Every year, there was a, a one-year lease, and October the 1st, for some reason, the lease was up. And every, you know, Ma, where are we moving this this year? Well, I think we'll move, you know, three blocks down and two blocks over. <laughs> and it was, a, it was a magnificent and beautiful thing. There were vacancies all over the place, uh, and every income level and every size apartment. It was just great, just terrific. And uh, and people moved every year. And so every October the 1st, the, the moving vans, the whole streets were cars with moving vans. Uh, moving from one you know, apartment to the other. Uh, immediately, Bingo comes to my control, law and Bingo—the the disappearance of the great moving, great October first moving fest. Uh, <laughs> nobody moves anymore. I mean, it's a very, very rare event. <coughs> the um, and, and 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 the knowledge of this, you know, has, has disappeared from uh, from New York Life. Uh, and of course, the excuse given by the establishment was, well, of course, there's a rent sh- uh, apartment shortage, the population is going up. Well, the first place population did not suddenly go up on November first, nineteen forty, or whatever the date the world was passed. And the second place, uh, the second place population, in New York City is not going up. It's remained about the same for about uh, twenty or thirty years, the same seven point X million, whatever it is. It's, it's really remained remarkably constant. So uh, again, we put we see the old the old control devil at work. Uh, what happened was that after nineteen 19- Comes about 1947, I think it was, and there are other much people, much more expert in this area than I am here tonight. Uh, the uh, what happens is that the 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 the, the politicians there with them look around, they find out there's no 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 new houses being built, no new apartment houses. Hey, this is kind of a peculiar thing. During the 20s and 30s, lots of apartment houses are being built. How come uh, here we are in a big post-war World War II boom? There ain't no houses being built. It's dawned on them that maybe there's some relationship between, the uh, heavy rent control and the, the big short of the big, uh, uh, holding the rents below the free market rate and the fact that no new houses are being built. It is, by the way, much easier to get across to the public the idea that control, the price control will cause a, a, a drop of, of future supply. That's not too difficult to get over. The really difficult thing to get over is that even given the supply, uh, price control below the market price causes shortages and then misallocation. So well, that's much more difficult to get over. But the idea that no new stuff will be built is it's fairly easy to comprehend, apparently. So uh, what happened is the, the the administration at the time decided, aha, here's what we'll do. We'll induce we'll, ha- we'll induce new housing to come in by having a free market of new houses, no rent control for new housing. Of course, there's no rent control at all for office buildings either, thus causing one of the, you know, the biggest office building boom probably in the history of the world. <laughs> The last 20 years that every, everybody should turn to this 40-story uh, monster, <laughs> and um, and uh, so we'll ha- okay, we'll have a new, we'll have free market for new uh, apartment houses and keep the old rent control in the old apartment house. But all of a sudden, the New York City housing 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 market was split in two, It was bifurcated. When used to, markets are usually interconnected, so now we had the old housing market. We still have the big shortage, going bigger and bigger. For old apartment buildings, it means old apartment buildings built before 1947. And new ha- apartment buildings was a free market. And the result of this was since the people couldn't find the old apartment apartments, this increased the demand curve, is like substitutes. We now have two markets. This increased the demand curve for new houses, for new apartments. Uh just like uh shutting off natural gas and putting by putting a maximum price control on that, increased the demand curve for heating oil. So this means this increase the demand curve for new apartments, and this increase, the amount of the free market rent for the new apartments was much higher than it would have been without the rent control system. You have this huge gap. You have a situation where, the, uh, for example, an old eight-room apartment on West End Avenue was very sturdily built, built like a fortress with large rooms and so forth, would be going into something like $125 a month. Uh, on the other hand, new, a new building built up, uh, built in a rather Jerry-built fashion on First Avenue or something. Or something. Uh, three room apartment, uh, with, where you can hear the person down the hall turn the light switch. Uh, this goes for $500 a month, something like that. You have this enormous and, and crazy disparities between rents. Uh, because every, the demand was forced in, was channeled into the new, these new apartments. And of course, then people think that, well, if we allow, uh, if we eliminate rent control in the old apartments, then the rents will skyrocket up to what it is in the new apartments, First Avenue or something, it's not true. What would happen would be a rise in the rents in the old apartments and a fall in the rents in the new apartments. There would be an equalization tendency towards... Now, other going back to the old one-housing market, interconnected uh, market, before this uh, the split. Uh, well, what happened is, and what, so this continued on, it was pegged along, in the, um, more or less in this in this fashion, Oh, by the way, one of the things that happened, one of the ways in which the housing shortage is manifest, an apartment shortage, is that, uh, uh, you have things like queuing up, the equivalent of queuing up, favoritism, black market, all these things show up in, 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 a, in New York City apartments. Uh, for example, uh, queuing up, you're on the, the, the waiting list. For example, in the building in which I live, which happens to be one of these old wall buildings, or old, old building types, uh, if you want to move to a seven-room apartment, let's say you have to go on a long waiting list, three-year waiting list or something like that, the point is, what moves you up to the head of the waiting list? Well, the Lord knows, uh, <laughs> from the lap of the gods. <laughs> if, uh, if however, you happen to be a brother-in-law of the landlord or a friend of the landlord or if a certain amount of money uh, changes hands, either with a super or the landlord, the super then becomes sort of his own, he's, he begins to allocate the property. Uh, then you go up, you shoot up on the waiting list. That's all that tends to happen. You also have, um, a situation where, well, for example, this, and this happened in France, uh, the famous juvenile study of, uh, life control in France. The same sort of thing was happening here to a lesser extent. In France, everything was much more aggravated. You begin to haunt the, uh, the funeral parlors and the, and the, people turn into ghouls, in other words. Uh, for example, just as, as sort of an instance of this, a friend of mine who, um, I say, it's sort of lacking in, in good taste and refinement anyway. Called <laughs> uh, me up very excitedly one day. I think it was a Saturday uh, um, afternoon or something like that. And said, Hey, it's a fantastic thing. Uh, uh, this old opera singer has died in an eight room apartment on Broadway. Because there's an article about her in the Times. And apparently, she died. And she lived in an eight room apartment. And she wasn't, she wasn't married or anything. Nobody else living there. And he's going to rush over in an hour and grab the apartment. Buy the apartment from the super or whatever the transaction is going to be. Uh, so, uh, so he rushed over there, as I say, not, not hampered by <laughs> refinement. <laughs> rushed over there. <laughs> he found out about five couples were ahead of him. He I means way, he's way down the list. So ghou- ghoulishness, uh, you know, comes to the fore. You've who's who died, you know, an hour ago? Uh, what apartment they have? And, you know, you rush over. Uh, and, and, and Paris apparently has the regular uh, the regular systematic uh, kind of thing where you put, you not only put a super on, a, or a landlord on a retainer, you put the funeral pause on a retainer. So the funeral director, <laughs> as the coffin comes in or the corpse comes in, check up, you call you up, give you the quick call, tell you about the apartment. You just, <laughs> just open up. So, uh, this, uh, this, this sort of, unhealthy, I think we all agree, kind of system is generated by the rent con- control process. There's also, um, I say the black market, and one of the common customers on the west side of Manhattan, which is sort of the key, probably the most, the most, biggest gap in the, in the country between the pre-market price and the rent control price, uh, you put the super on a retainer, you go on various buildings, you put the super on a retainer and say, call me up and stuff. That's sort of very common practice. Uh, one of the things that happens is that the people, people get locked in. If you're in the, if you happen to be in the in the in this rent control apartment, and the gap keeps increasing because of inflation, here you are. You sort of locked in at something like serfdom. So what you have, typically in the west side of Manhattan, you have the following kind of scenario, as they say. Uh, a, a couple, a couple moving with two or three kids moves into an eight-room apartment in Central Park West, West End Avenue, in the 1930s, when the apartment was, I don't know, $85 a month. And then it's, it's uh, well, what happens is the, they decided, to complete this story, they decided to, um, the city decided, well, we can't leave the, the rents exactly in 1940 levels. It's a little too much, you know, a little too blatant. So it will allow a 15% increase every time somebody moves out and some other family moves in. You can imagine what, what happens then, the economic analysis of that. Then you have a, t- a fantastic class struggle is initiated between the landlord trying to get the tenant out and another tenant in because 15% rise every time you do that, and the tenant tries to stay in. So this, instead of the landlord courting the, the tenant and trying to get more tenants in or, or trying to keep the tenant there when he is in and, uh, and painting and all that, and incru- improving the amenities of the place. The landlord is trying to get the old tenant out, improve the amenities for the new tenant, and then get the new tenant out and you know, toss and reshuffle so you can get somewhere up to the free market uh, price. But anyway, in the situation of a couple with a two, three, three kids moving in the 1930s at uh, 85 a month, so the rent goes up a little bit, but the couple stays in. They are locked in. The, ch- the children grow up and move away. The husband dies, and you have a little old widow an eight-room apartment paying $120 a month. And, uh, the free market rate is something like $500. <laughs> so the, uh, and the thing is, the widow can't move because if she moved any any other apartment, say in a new building, the available apartment would be like one room for $300 a month, something like that. So, so the uh, little old lady locked in. And you have this fantastic what's known as uh, space hoarding, so to speak. Certainly not her fault. I mean, I think that's the situation. Whereas younger couples getting married or new people coming in from out of town have to go to the Park Avenue, the 1st Avenue apartment, pay the $400 for the two rooms. So you have this tremendous misallocation of where a new family, just because they're new, just because they're new, newly arrived on the scene, you get penalized, whereas an old family, sort of, it's like surf, The old family got the seniority and you're there uh, forever. Uh, another thing that happens, another peculiar and bizarre thing here is that uh, what the rent is uh, purely depends on whether the person, how many times people have moved in and out. So you can have on the same full, same house the floor above and the floor below, you can have the same apartment, one going for eighty-five dollars a month and the other going for four hundred, depending on how many times people have moved out. If you have the serfdom situation, a little old lady still hanging on, they have a very low price, the other half people have moved in and out a lot, you'll have a much, much higher price, really, really insane kind of housing allocation. I mean, nobody nobody can possibly defend this <laughs> any kind of uh, any kind of economic principle. So, uh again of course the result of uh, rent control. What <laughs> what happened then was um, uh, in the late 60s, I think it was, I forget now, it's around the middle of the late 60s, the New York City government in its wisdom passed a, a new, improved zoning law. Uh, the zoning laws are always designed to help the public give fresh air and grass and everything, all that sort of nonsense to the <laughs> New York, the smeltering New York City masses. And each time, of course, they do that, they can impose drastic restrictions on, the, on how much can be built, after have to be setbacks every few feet. As a result, this cuts down the supply of new houses. This, is, of course, is not taken into consideration, presumably, by the uh, city planners. So, uh, because you, you might, if you could only build a building with, you know, uh, with almost all the lot, a very expensive lot taken up with grass or something, uh, you might have beautifully grassy buildings. On the other hand, you might, have, might not have too many buildings at all as a result of this, this uh, imposition. But anyway, so the, the uh, real estate business was given several years grace and several years warning. that the zoning law was going to go into effect in a few years. And so, of course, there was a fantastic rush to build buildings quickly, build new apartment buildings, to get in before the crazy zoning law comes in, when the whole the whole housing market will be clobbered forevermore. So there was this big bulge, a supply, a sort of a, a sudden bulge in the mid-60s, and supply curve to the right, in uh, in new houses, new apartments. As a result, for the first and probably last time in history of New York City, we had a fall in rents and, and new buildings. Uh was almost back to the golden age of 1930s. Not quite, but it's, it was sort of a, a trailing clouds of glory from the past. Uh, for example, during the 1930s, the way your rents, I mean, the way you cut rents, you don't, you don't start off by cutting rents, that's pretty drastic. What you do is you offer concessions. In other words, you offer one month or two months or three months free rent for the person to move in and sign a two or three year lease. So this is a form of rent cut, but it's not a sort of an official form. You can you know, retract the concession much more easily. You can uh, jack the price up again. So, so they started offering, new buildings were offering concessions, uh, rental concessions for the first time since the 1930s. It was a beautiful thing to watch. There are actually vacancies and signs, vac- uh, vacancy signs instead of, uh, instead of the old, uh, under the table, uh, bribes, that sort of stuff. Well, um, well, of course, this was a temp- only a temporary bonanza, because then comes the zoning law and bingo, psht, the, uh, supply of new houses forced to, uh, almost zero, and uh, that means the supply curve of new houses shifts to the left and it very s- suddenly, and it's, in other words, a result of this zoning war kind of situation. So the result of this is that when the leases come up, two, three-year leases come up uh, for the new for the post-1947 housing, all of a sudden, the free market price is going way up. In other words, it's because of this bulge and then uh, bulge the other way after the zoning war went into effect. As a result, of the, uh, the new tenants New building tenants were asked for a very hefty uh, rent increase on the landlords, 50% in some cases, 30% or whatever. So hysteria then hit. Um, and of course, the free market was blamed for this. You see, if you have a free market in houses, the landlords will gouge you and raise the rents infinitely, and all that sort of thing. All that sort of nonsense. Uh, you can't trust the market and the, the, the new building tenants, many of whom were quite wealthy, of course. I mean, there's a sort of a, a sort of a that's sort of a knee-jerk response that tenants are always poor and landlords are always wealthy. So that's a lot of nonsense. There so are lots of little old ladies who have like one, one apartment building, you know, an um, apartment building with two families. They'll get small income out of it. And there are lots of very, very wealthy tenants. Uh, the Rock, Nelson Rockefeller used to be a tenant before the Park Avenue building like co-op. So, uh, you don't have to really bleed for the tenant per se. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> So the tenants put enormous pressure, uh, uh, on the city government to do something about this, put on, and, and city government responded, funding uh, put on rent control on new, on new buildings for so the first time since 1947. So now we have two, two different types, types of rent control. We have the, the old law rent control, the pre-47, the really rugged one, and you have a peculiar thing called rent stabilization for the new buildings, where you're allowed 15%, maximum 15% increase per year or something like that. So, of course, the result of this was a totally clobber new, build new residential buildings. And who, who emblazes, if you're in the construction, building construction business, who would build a, residential building at all now, uh, when you can just as easily build an office building, uh, and know that you're going to be free from rent, from rent control forevermore. In contrast. So, well, finally, uh, in 1971, a little bit of sanity hit the, the housing situation when the, famous Urstadt report was uh, issued. The uh, New York State Housing Commissioner, Charles Urstadt, who said, well, "Really, the whole problem of apartment shortage in New York City is, uh, is the rent control." And he, I guess, he would have liked to have gotten rid of rent control altogether. That was politically impossible. So he, he, does, he pushed through the legislature the so-called vacancy control law, which uh, decont- or vacancy decontrol law which decontrols apartments as soon as they become empty. Of course, and, and, continues the old price, rent 15% or whatever, some other formula, continues the old severe rent control for if, you, if the tenant stays, stays in there. Of course, this has, sets up a fantastic class struggle, because that means if you kick, if you're able to kick the tenant out, the whole thing, you go up to the free market rent, and the tenant claims there for dear life, uh, he stays there, he or she stays there at 40% 50% below. So, uh, as a result, they pass all sorts of laws that, uh, special hotline uh, uh, housing bureaus would stay open 24 hours a day or something and make sure you know call up whenever the landlord uh, dumps garbage in your window, or whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, well, what happened, this has not really been tested very well because as soon as, no, the thing, the law was only into effect, the legacy control law was only in effect for about two months when President Nixon passes his uh, freeze. And then federal rent controls came in and then, then everything got messed up. I'm not really sure what's going on. I think now for the last six months or a year or so, it's the, biggest, the state vacancy decontrol law has been in, in use in practice. I don't know I don't know the effect of it, except a lot of us fail to eliminate it altogether and go back to the old rent control, which is essentially the current situation. So anyway, we've managed to have a 30, because of wartime, the shortage, of the rent shortage of course was blamed on wartime as well as population. Uh, the war has been over now. World War II has been over for, what is it, uh, almost 30 years. And the emergency rent control still remains in force, <coughs> and of course the shortage remains in force. Uh, all right, there are other areas where, well, I should mention, I mentioned France also in passing, Bertrand de Juvenal wrote an excellent, excellent little pamphlet on rent control in, in France, particularly in Paris, and he wrote it in 1948, and apparently the situation is more or less the same now, and he got the same sort of uh, situation except more severe, where rents have remained... Not too much higher than they we were in 1914, and prices are astronomically higher. And so, people, a wealthy person, for example, might pay 1% of his income in rent, uh, or $1 a month, or something like that, for rent. I mean, the whole thing, as a result of this, you can't rent any apartment at all. I mean, you buy an apartment, which is, which incidentally is happening in the west side of Manhattan also, where you simply, the building goes co op, in quotes, so that instead of renting an apartment, you have to buy it. The result of this gets completely out from under the rent control law. There's no price control on, on co-ops and buying the whole whole apartment. So that means there's plenty of apartments available if you have the money to buy it. So the poor. I mean, here rent control originally is supposed to come in to help poor tenants, help out the poor tenant. Now we're getting more and more in a situation where the only time you can be a tenant, so to speak, is when you're not a tenant. When you have when you have to scratch to buy the whole apartment. <laughs> Which is a rather peculiar kind of uh, reverse effect, at any rate. <clears throat> Uh, the, uh, coming on to, and I, I should say also that in Europe, uh, rent control is very severe, uh, uh, Scandinavian countries and France and Israel and so forth, the result of which the apartment shortage is very severe. So it's correspondingly, uh, severe. Uh, there are other areas where it's not quite as obvious where, where price control does its work in causing, uh, causing shortages. For example, We've had a problem for quite a few years of airport congestion, particularly at peak, peak hours. Uh, and here I commend the, commend your attention to an excellent pamphlet on airports called Airports and Congestion, something like that by Ross Eckert, put out by the American Enterprise Institute. Um, what happens, what happens is, so what you have is, is a shortage of, of, uh, airspace there on the airport. All right. So what's going on here? Why is there a shortage? Well, again, of course, we always look for government. In the case of airports, airports are, <laughs> airports are universally owned by owned by municipal, municipal government. Apparently, um, it's become part of the American heritage that you can't have a private commercial airport. Uh, I understand that Pan Am, a friend of mine works for Pan Am, so Pan Am several years ago tried to get permission from New York City to build a, uh, its own airport in the New York area, which would have relieved congestion, which would set up for its own planes, was denied as being evil, you know, immoral, whatever. <laughs> Uh, so, so the tradition is going up. You have to have government control airports. Now the government, as, as we'll see later as we get to government in general, as they see it keeps sniping away at government throughout, and after, as we get along, we integrate it more and more. Uh, government has no particular reason for, for maximizing profits. We'll probably get, get the maximizing mm-hmm. profits today too. We'll operate, operating efficiently or anything of that sort. Their pricing is, they price them whatever way they want to, for political reasons, because Whatever happens, the taxpayer is going to pick up the tab after any de- uh, deficits. Uh, there's no, of course, there's no competition. So, the way the, uh, what happens is the airports have priced their services in a, in a really bizarre, um, bizarre way, which no private airport would ever do. What they the problem comes in the fact that the, the prices, the, the, the short, the big shortage is in the runway, and the problem comes in the fact that the price of the runway, you know, that was the landing fee and the takeoff fee, is extraordinarily low. It's something like a, a five dollars for a landing, and it's equal for every plane that comes in, whether it's a 300-passenger airliner or, or a private plane zooming in with one person in it. And it's equal for the time of day; it doesn't matter whether it's rush hour or or you know midnight. So the result of all this is that the demand for airport runways uh, is much higher in the rush hour periods and would be much higher. I mean, certainly Pan Am would be willing to pay a lot more than, than Joe Blow's private plane for landing. The result of that fantastically pushed the price of runways way, way below the free market price and caused congestion in these points. And me, It also means, and how, do you, how do you ration shortages, uh, Short, uh, this kind of shortage, rationed by queuing up, in this case. So uh, queuing up, of course, in the airlines is stacking up. So the, Pan Am circles for an hour, so, so the two private planes that happen to get there first. It's, it's, all, it's like a line. You can't reserve your space. Pan Am can't say, I reserve runway five of uh, Kennedy Airport at uh, five o'clock. No, no, you take your chances. And if you get there, if it happens to be two private planes zooming in ahead of you, it's just tough luck. So this sort of, uh, so this, here we have a system of congestion being a shortage of, of space, uh, brought about by this, by this crazy pricing policy of pushing, keeping airport way below the market price. Uh, the Eckerd pamphlet goes into the whole s- discussion of what happens. Uh, what happens, for example, when um, when Kennedy Airport, I think, raised its its price for its landing fees from something like five dollars to something like twenty-five dollars. i really really, twenty-five dollars is pretty small too. But yet, just this little increase pushed out enormously relieved congestion because it pushed out a lot of the private planes that wouldn't pay. I mean, you think, after all, if a guy has a private plane, he's pretty 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 rich. But still in all, that extra $20 was uh, stuck in his craw, and they tended to shift from Kennedy Airport to the little airports in Westchester, et cetera, where, which was designed for private planes, which is supposed to handle these people, but of course, who wants to land in Westchester when you can land in Kennedy and nip into the Manhattan very quickly? But that extra $20 was apparently a good incentive not to do that, to, to spend $5 to land in Westchester. So just that, and that, and that was hardly a market-clearing price increase, but that, that, that itself was a point of the way. Also, of course, the idea of, of uh, charging passengers, for example, higher fares in rush hours than in off hours so rain is an intelligent thing, and would help the problem, too. Uh, however, the really, the, really gut, the really guts of the thing is this air, the, uh, the runway caper, uh, which is still almost, still way below the free market level. Uh, and as, and what happened, as I say, what happens is that since Pan Am is much more willing to pay the Say a hundred dollars even than than a a single person, the pleasure pleasure of flying on Sunday or any other time. Uh, (laughs) uh, The the pleasure of flying will go up to Westchester and have the, uh, and and, and take longer to come into the city. Uh, In the meantime, while they're doing this, the airports also have another peculiar pricing system. They give monopoly concessions to, well, the concessionaires. The concessionaires then charge monopoly prices. So, and, and Eckert says so the whole study been done. For example, the price of a sandwich at an airport restaurant and, you know, a comparable restaurant, restaurant very close by, if you get sort of a. Uh, and the airport sandwich is a much higher price, probably also poorer in quality. Although it's difficult, <laughs> difficult to, for a scholar to gauge. <laughs> but so the point is, you have this. So you have these. You have this monopoly. You have the monopoly concession. The the concessionaire charges a monopoly price, and the concessionaire shares the monopoly game with the airport. In other words, the airport is a, sort of like a kickback uh, to the airport itself. And then, and the airport expects to get most of its money to, to recoup, to break even, or make money on, on from the concessionaires. And whatever it doesn't, whatever it, it, it fails to, you know, whatever deficits it has in the concessionaire business, that that that's what it charges for the runways. And instead of charging a market-clearing price for the runways, it simply charges a, as little as it can uh, what the, you know, the customers have left over after they've been socked for the crummy sandwiches. So, uh, and the insurance, and there are all sorts of concessions in airports which design to charge monopoly prices. Uh, so, uh, again, if we have private airports, and there's no reason why we can't have private airports, uh, uh this, this sort of pricing system would not be, would not be going on. There's another, of course, uh, uh very prominent form of shortage. Congestion, even more prominent than the airports, and that's uh, traffic congestion in big cities. Uh, rush hour, New York City is getting to the plumber any hour, Manhattan is uh, congested. Well, uh, what you have again is a shortage of traffic, a shortage of street space. And of course, this is not unrelated to the fact that the owners of the streets, invariably and everywhere, are government. Uh, how does government price the streets? Well, they, they price them in a very irrational manner, let's put it that way. Uh, not in a market clearing manner. If they did, there wouldn't be any, there wouldn't be custom congestion. The pricing, the uh, government excuse, excuse is that they're, well, that's alright, they're pricing, uh, by use, by the user tax on gasoline. So the tax of the, you pay per gallon of gasoline goes for the highways and all that sort of stuff, so it all balances out. But first place, it doesn't really balance out, but aside from that, uh, the point is you're spending, um, as much money then for, 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 to drive it cost you as much to drive around uh, Upper Westchester at 3 a.m. as it does to drive around Midtown Manhattan at 5 p.m. So the fact that you're, you're spending money per gallon doesn't really mean a darn thing. It doesn't. It's not a market-clearing kind of kind of price. No private street owner in his right mind would a price in that manner. So what kind of pricing will they be? Well, obviously they'd be. We can't we can't predict in detail how the market would operate. But obviously be in a way to charge more money for con- congested streets, and then for non-congested streets, for outlying areas. Uh, there can be all sorts of devices to do this. There's uh, various economists, by the way, even non-market economists have got interested in this area. as sort of an intellectual game. How, how could this operate? Come up with interesting suggestions. Uh, one way is to have a special sticker, I mean, like a license. So Instead of having just a regular license, you have the sticker on the window or whatever, which... Uh, which you have to pay for either per week or per month or per day, whatever you know, can be always adjusted, which would be very expensive and, and allow you to drive around the midtown area from four to six or something like that. Uh, and the price would be charged in a market, market clearing manner. The same thing can be done for parking. The parking fees, once, of course parking is all, again, mostly handled by government and street parking uh, certainly. And uh, parking fees are very peculiar. They're invariably way underpriced, way, way below the free market price. And as a result of a big parking sh- parking space shortage, uh, plus the fact that it priced in a lot of peculiar way, so that, um, very often they're priced in such a way that, that you're, you're subsidized for spending more time there. In other words, if you park for four hours, of course you're less per hour than if you park for a half hour. Of course, if you want to get, if you want to have a high turnover and clear the, clear the, uh, clear the uh, market for parking, you should do just the opposite. You charge more for a longer period. You try to induce the guy to get out so a new car can come in. Uh, the governments almost never do that. Uh, so what you would have, and the thing is, what the government does, and this is a typical government activity, either they subsidize the parking so the price is zero in effect, almost virtually zero for a park, for a street space, in which, so you have tremendous congestion. And then, a, Or they say, well, what we have to do, is no getting around, we have to ban all cars from Manhattan, from Midtown Manhattan, prohibit them, You know, stop them, shoot anybody who comes in, the, comes in the 42nd Street. It's a typical government kind of activity, where either you, either something is free, either you subsidize it so it's completely free, or else you prohibit it altogether. Uh, obviously, what the market would do, if the market were allowed in this situation, is to gauge the thing and you know, and, set the, have, and price it, and set the price in such a way as to clear the market, and everybody would be happy. There'd be no shortage of parking space. It'd be fairly expensive, perhaps, but that's the way it should be, since that would be allocating the scarce space for the, for the intense demand. Uh, I don't know what the price of course would be, but it would be somewhere, you know, it would be somewhere in between zero and being prohibited. <laughs> um, so someday, if we ever get this kind of market pricing, if we ever get private streets, uh, we'll get market pricing. The funny thing is, most people think of the onus, if somebody advocates privately owned streets, that uh, the assumption is that the government is, is operating streets so beautifully that the onus on proving that the market can handle it is on the person who advocates the, the market uh, alternative. It seems to me it should be just the opposite. Certainly in New York City, the streets are miserable, dirty, and littered, and, uh, and congested. And uh difficult to see how any private street company can do any worse. So just on just just empirical grounds, one would think they would try it. Uh, so we should, we should tend to look then at things, not just sort of obvious things like uh, nails and cement, where shortages can be caused by price control, also in these sort of hidden areas where people don't think in terms of prices. Uh, such as uh, airport space, such as uh, traffic space, and so forth. Uh, we'll get later on, uh, we'll get on to questions of conservation, go back to the, the whole thing about scarce capital and scarce natural resources, too. And also the, the, the whole question of private property in general, in different hidden areas, so to speak, we'll get to later on. The whole things of private property areas where nobody thinks in terms of private property, such as Radio TV channels, uh, well, we'll get to that uh, later on.